Hey, did you hear? Major League Baseball's trade deadline was on Wednesday. I'll talk with Howard Bender from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and FantasyAlarm.com and all our Baseball HQ commentators and Todd Zola, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 2nd. August, can you believe it? It's show number 34 of the 2019 fantasy baseball season, and I can barely believe that either. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. We have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. He'll be talking about the trading deadline in Major League Baseball, of course, but also trading in fantasy leagues about players who create emotional scars for life. And, of course, his boons and banes for the rest of the season. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports, Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including the trade impacts of the deadline, and Shane Green and Trevor Bauer and other National League player news, Jock Thompson looking at the trade deadline in the American League, Zach Greinke, Yaziel Puig, and other new American League players. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola how the deadline is affected by park factors and how park factors affect the players. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer, in our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Seattle outfielder Ian Miller. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at a Sunday stare down in the Sunshine State with Miami left-hander Caleb Smith in Tampa to face right-hander Charlie Morton. And there's a big slate of weekend mismatchups, kind of thing you might want to look at for stacking. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the anatomy of a Tout Wars deal I made. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It wasn't a trade deadline after all. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, it was slow to get going, a deal here and there, like Marcus Stroman going to the Mets, and a bigger deal with Trevor Bauer, Yaziel Puig, and Fran Reyes. But according to a story on MajorLeagueBaseball.com, on deadline day itself, July 31st, there were no fewer than 20 trades. And you can bet we'll be talking about a lot of them on our show today. In the first inning of this Friday full edition, though, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Howard, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Well, glad to be back, Patrick. Thanks very much. I, I, was, I was surprised you even asked me back, you know. Usually people get one dose of me and they're like, yep, that's enough of Bender. I can't believe that's true. I bet uh, your show on Sirius XM, uh, the Fantasy Alarm Show, 4 to 6 on weekdays, that's uh, XM 87, Sirius 210. And in your role as the host of that, you guys are pretty much now in full football mode. But I'm curious, as a guy who's very into fantasy baseball, I know, and very uh, into fantasy football, I know, where are the areas you see where those two games overlap? Um, You know, that's tough because... uh... I'll be perfectly honest. You know, I've said this for, for years and years, that winning a fantasy baseball league takes skill, it takes intelligence, it takes tenacity. But any mouth-breathing knuckle-dragger can win a fantasy football league. So, you know, I mean, where do, where do they overlap? I think, you know, if you play in a league that uses a fab system, I, I think that's, you know, like strategy-wise, 
I think that's definitely a, a, a key overlap there that you have to really know where and when it's best to be aggressive with your money. Um, you know, I mean, obviously injuries aside, because once you get, you start dealing with a bunch of injuries piled up, then you're just, you know, then you're making it rain at club fab on a regular basis. But if you're just trying to strategize for the season, I think that that's, you know, a, a good section where the two of them overlap. I also think, you know what, I mean, overall, I think in, in any fantasy sport, patience, like patience is so necessary. Everybody panics when they talk about fantasy football saying, well, you know, the regular season, it's only 12 weeks, 12 weeks long and I can't fall out of it and I can't take another loss in this head-to-head format. And I think that they get all worked up and crazed about it to the point where, you know, like you see fantasy baseball people panicking uh, from a bad April for a hitter or for a pitcher and they don't, <clears throat> they don't take it to account. You still have another five months of games to play in, in fantasy baseball. And in fantasy football, it's really because it's a head-to-head format. You don't have to win every game. You don't need an undefeated season. You just need to make it to the playoffs. So I think uh, patience is one of the things that's just so necessary in any fantasy sport game you play. I have a few friends who play fantasy football, and they tell me that uh, a trend in the game, not a, not a huge trend, is more and more leagues are going to auction style rather than snake draft style because they are kind of envious of the the baseball experience where you can actually value players and you're not locked out just because the guy in front of you decides that he wants uh, you know a, a football player that you want you're just completely locked out which is kind of the big drawback of snake drafts in general it has its advantages too have you noticed an increase a noticeable increase in uh, in how many f- fantasy football leagues are going to the auction mode um, no, I can't say that I've noticed a, an increase. <clears throat> you know, it, it's pretty much the same. You know, I get, I get enough people who talk to me about, you know, auction strategy, uh, for fantasy football, but uh, no, I, you know, the problem is, the problem is, is that the majority of, of fantasy football players, um, they, you know, they, they talk about the fact that they like football over baseball because it's more fast paced because it's it's easier to follow it's once a week they're always you know they're they're always looking for like the i don't want to say the easy way out but they're looking for for something quick and something abbreviated so you know every time you talk to somebody about an auction you know you get all these people who are like oh i mean yeah sure it sounds great but you know who's got time to invest you know 5 hours in their day to do a fantasy auction. And so, you know, I hear that constant complaint, you know, it's the hardcore people who really just, who appreciate and understand the auction. Um, I can't really say that that, that, that population is growing. I hope it grows more. I really do because I prefer an auction to a snake draft any day of the week, but I can't really say that it's growing to the point right now where, uh, where it's tilting more in that favor. Getting back to baseball, uh, how many teams are you running this year in fantasy baseball, and how are they doing? Oh, I'm running far too many teams, Patrick. I think uh, 12 teams in total for fantasy baseball. I would say right now at this point of the season, three of them are competing for a title. A fourth one is, is possible, but I just don't know if I'm going to have the horses uh, to carry me through the rest of the way. So. 
three doing real well in, in, in contention for a championship. The rest, uh, well, yeah, not so good. Have you noticed any common themes, uh, whether it's uh, co- players in common or uh, strategies in common that mark your successful teams? Um, yeah, it's it's the teams that I didn't get decimated with injuries. You know, one of the yeah. things that you know, and, and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm I'm changing my mentality on this in a in a major way now. Is really is playing that many leagues, that many teams. I have to I have to really diversify a lot more. I have to diversify my players because what happens is, is you know, like this year for example, and you know, you and I are in AL tout together. Um, you saw what happened. I I got you know tagged price enforcing on Severino, but I invited and I, I picked him up in a couple of leagues that uh, were snake drafts and you know easy going on the uh, on the price tag there. But Judge Olson, Clevenger. Um, you know, I just I invested in in those guys in so many teams this year that once I lost them uh, early on in the season to injury, I mean it really became a matter of trying to play catch up, losing a lot of fab money in a number of different leagues. And so, yeah, the, the teams that I've really kind of fallen out on are the teams where I just over invested in those particular players, the teams that are more successful right now. Um, I just I went different route, you know, different routes. Not necessarily a different strategy in drafting, but just saying, you know, okay, I've got enough shares of Clevenger here. Uh, you know, let me turn around and invest in another high end starting pitcher that uh, that I like. So I think that's really kind of where it came down to it for this year. In a way, though, it must be kind of reassuring to know that the reason that you have a team that's not doing well is because of injuries, because really they're unpredictable. You mentioned uh, uh, Aaron Judge. I know he's had some injury issues in the past, but Severino was not noticeably uh, injury-prone. I don't think Matt Olson was necessarily the kind of guy that you go in and think, oh, I don't even know if I want this guy because he's going to get hurt. Uh, in a way, you, you, can, you can look at the draft and you go, I actually drafted a pretty good team, and then I got nailed I got blindsided by this uh, by this injury spate that, that came along, and and like I said, in a way that must be reassuring that you just didn't have a huge strategic blunder in in creating the team. Uh, yes, do I have a, a good excuse? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, it definitely makes it easier to say that you know that fluke injuries really uh, tormented me this year. I mean, to be able to say that. Yes, it's definitely easier than turning around being like, well, I just completely missed, you know, misfired on a couple of these calls, uh, and that didn't happen. So, yeah, I do appreciate the fact that it, uh, that, that I have the, uh, the built-in excuse as far as the fluke injuries, but, I, I, you know, you never like to lay, you know, lay down on that. You never want to sit there and say, oh, well, you know, it was just all these injuries and I just couldn't recover. You've got to try and find ways to scratch and claw and really fight back, and if you don't, well, you know, then you have to, then, then it's a matter of, well, why not? You know, was it, is it because the league is so super competitive, you know, like AL Tau, where the player pool is just so thin that, you know, it's, it's next to impossible to recover. But if you invest in those guys and you're playing in a, a 10-team home league, that's a mixed league at that, well, then you've got no excuses. You need to be able to kind of learn how to fight back properly. 
Yeah, I wasn't thinking about it so much as an excuse. I mean, you're a well-established, successful fantasy player, and I don't imagine anybody expects you to make an excuse, but uh, all of us are in this kind of in this same boat. And I, I'm thinking more when you're looking back on your season just for your own reflection, and you can say it's not an excuse. I drafted a pretty good team, and I just got crushed by injuries, and, and I'm not going to change my strategy next year because there's nothing I could do to change my strategy except know in advance which players are going to get hurt, and that's not even possible. True. Very true. But also, again, you know, the, the lesson for me here is, uh, is to just diversify. I mean, if you're playing in, in that many leagues, I mean, listen, I've always been of that mindset where, well, if I, if I really think that this guy's going to break out, why, why would I avoid him in other leagues? But again, if you're, if you're going to play in 12 different industry leagues and you know that the level of competition is going to be extremely high, the last thing you want to do is have to sit there and scramble for six of those leagues uh, for the same injuries over and over again because all those teams are going to end up in the same boat. So I guess, yeah, I mean, no, I'm not going to change my strategy in the way I analyze a player. What I guess I, would, I just have to do is I have to learn that my, you know, playing in a number of, of competitive leagues like this, that I do need to kind of pull back on, on the enthusiasm on some players and just learn to spread the love around a little bit more. It's an interesting idea, Howard. I'll play devil's advocate here for you, and let me know what you think about this. If we assume that there's a probability that any player could get injured, and it's a, it's a non-zero probability because we, we know that there's always a chance. And if we diversify our roster so that we don't have the same player on any of them, let's say we go to the extreme, and if, if I draft uh, you know, uh, Aaron Nola in league number one, and I'm absolutely scratching him off my list for leagues two, three, four, five, and six, and I, and I start diversifying my pitching staff and I diversify my hitters similarly, am I not kind of in a weird way increasing the chance that, uh, that injuries are going to hammer me because I'm, I'm getting more and more players which increases the probability that, that more of them won't get through the season without, a, without an injury. So, you, you know, if you say there's a 50% chance for every player and you start multiplying out that chance, 50 times 50 is now a quarter and then an eighth and then a 16th and so forth, pretty soon you have a, a whole bunch of rosters that are all but guaranteed to suffer from injuries, whereas... If I draft Aaron Nola, and let's assume he has a good year, he's not having a really good year this year, but let's suppose I had drafted Aaron Nola on all my teams or that I had drafted um, Jose Barrios on all my teams. And I, in fact, I did on two out of my the three teams that I play. If he gets through the season unscathed, I'm actually benefiting from the fact that I wasn't diversified because I could very easily have diversified away from Jose Barrios, who's going to pitch a complete season, or Trevor Bauer, uh, who I had in two leagues as well. And I could easily have diversified into Luis Severino and, and killed one of those teams. Yeah, I mean, listen, you, you have to expect that injuries are going to happen no matter what. You always have to expect that. I mean, that's just that's a part of the game. Nobody gets through an entire season without injuries. I guess it comes down to the degree of injury, the timing of the injuries. Um, you know, I guess if you're, if you're using the same players on multiple teams – and somebody, you know, and, and people get hurt, well, then, you know, at the same time, you're sitting there and you're trying to recover from that injury. I guess if you're, if you're diversifying a little bit more, then maybe there's a little less overlap and uh, different strategies are employed, different extents of injuries uh, come into play. You know, and obviously, you know, you lose a guy like Matt Olson for the first two months of the season there because of the hamate bone. 
maybe you know it's not you know it's not him on one team, but on another team you lose your first baseman and maybe you only lose him for you know the two week stint and you only have to recover that way. I don't know. I mean, it's just it's always tough when you're dealing with injuries on on that level. You have to expect that you're always going to be dealing with them. So I guess it just comes down to the point where this year I got hit hard by a select few group of injuries that really lasted a lengthy amount of time. And I guess that's really what it comes down to is that that's probably more the rarity than anything else. You know, everybody else deals with, oh, you know, two weeks on the IL, three weeks on the IL. This was like, boom, you know, we're, we're losing players for months on end. And all at the same time, too. So, in a way, you losing uh, Olsen and Judge for whatever it was, uh, six weeks, two two months apiece, is like losing your entire roster for a week. It's like you played a zero week, counting all of them, because you lose however many player weeks that is. Uh, you know, it's 12, 26, 27, something like that. Player weeks, it's like you lost a whole week of the season. And, and that is really tough to recover from. Uh, I mentioned that you are the host of the uh, Fantasy Alarm Show on XM, and I enjoyed your broadcast earlier this week. Uh, you and your partner Jim Bowden, the former GM, talked about scar players. Uh, you talked about these guys who have burned you so badly in the past that you will literally never have them on your roster again. Uh, I know you guys were talking mostly about football players, but do you have any guys like that on your baseball all-scar team? Oh, absolutely. Oh, deep emotional scars, Patrick. That's what it comes down to. It's who really, you know, who hurts the most? Um, guys who have burned me in the past, I would say my deepest emotional scars probably come from, uh, let's see, how about Jason Kipnis is probably one of the guys who who just, yeah, that just, uh, he's just, he's hurt me so badly over the years. I remember when Kipnis first came into the, uh, into the league and there was this great power speed combo and he was, is looking really good, and then all of a sudden you want to talk about the injury bug taking a big bite out of somebody on a regular basis. Um, it was it was Kipnis, and you know it was early on. It was the injuries. Then all of a sudden he was healthy, but he would he would give you like this fantastic month of production, uh, like right there towards the tail end of spring training, and really right there in the beginning of the season he would start off hot. And I would just, I would just be roped in and just, you know, suckered in. And oh, I love it, Jason Kip. This, this is it. This is again. This is the year. And then nothing. Uh, you know, then he like, then he decimated for the rest of the first half. And maybe he shows up for the second half. So, hitting wise, uh, Kipnis is my deep emotional scar. Pitching wise, uh, I just Sonny Gray. What happened to Sonny Gray, Patrick? That one. Really, I mean, when he was when he was coming up and he was working out in the uh, in the Oakland system, I was super high on him. Everything looked great, and then I guess it was yeah, I, you know, I, I I was patient through the uh, through the lat injury that he went through, not really, I guess, understanding just how much a lat injury really decimates a player. I guess I I mean I should have learned the lesson with Jake Peavy. Um, back when he really ended up with uh, with his major injury, but Sonny Gray, and then he was going to the Yankees, and I was like all excited about the ground ball rate, and obviously being a Yankee fan, a little bit of homerism creeps in, and man, Sonny Gray has just been so awful, and, and 
And all of a sudden, he ended up on everybody's sleeper list this year. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not buying into it. I can't have it. And uh, and he's actually been fairly good, but I, I just I won't go back. I, I just I won't go back to him. Yeah, that's the crushing thing about a guy like Sonny Gray. I've had similar experiences with him, where I was, I was always buying on the on the uh, on the come from the previous year, these last few years, because the first two or three years he was actually really good. All three of his first three years, uh, you know, really low whips, uh, ERAs under three, I believe, and and then all of a sudden in 2016, the first year I had him, he was over way over five for an ERA and uh, had a 150 whip. And uh, and so I'm out on Sonny Gray. The next year he's up, you know, 350 and 110 or something like that. And so that's 2017. So 2018, I think I'm back in on Sonny Gray. Bam, five and 1.5 again. And now I'm out again. And this year he's uh, 350, 110 again. You know, I mean, it, maybe this is like one of those weird, even odd kind of things that I have to be aware of. But you know, yeah, I agree with you. Sonny Gray's just a, one of those kind of guys that. It isn't so much that he's been consistently bad, it's that he's been inconsistently good and bad, and I'm always catching him, you know, trying to catch that teeter-totter and getting it under my chin. Yeah, I think I wrote an article at one point uh, trying to, you know, trying to explain really what it felt like, with, you know, going back and forth with Sonny Gray, and I, I kind of I equated it to an abusive relationship. I mean, I you know, my, my, my upbringing had, a, you know, a lot of abuse in it, so... You know, I, I you know I see it from different angles, from you know somebody involved, and you know with 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 my father and my mother and that, and I look at it as Sunny Gray is that same thing where it's like, you know, oh oh he's changed, oh he's changed. I can go back to him, Patrick. I can go back to him. He's changed. He's different. No no oh, same story. No no this hurts. Oh sorry. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. He is uh, the scars run run real deep with Sunny Gray for me as well. On the flip side of that, what baseball fantasy players have you had that became guys you always wanted to have in each succeeding year and were glad that you did? Um, you know, I'm glad that I did not jump on that fly ball rate debacle of Christian Yelich. You know, that was that was definitely one of the things that, you know, when we saw Christian Yelich in uh in, in Miami when he was with the Marlins, you know, the whole thing was, yeah, this guy's got a great power potential. Um, you know, can, he's got speed on the bases. He just needs to increase his fly ball rate. And, and he wouldn't increase his fly ball rate. And nobody, you know, and, and people were like, well, he's never going to hit for power. He's never going to hit you 20 home runs because that happens. And I stuck with him through and through and kept drafting him every year and then he lands in Milwaukee and I mean let's face it I mean if you're not reaping benefits off of owning Christian Yelich right now then well, I don't know what's wrong with you my guy like that is Nelson Cruz I, I was in uh, tout mixed and I think it was my first draft and I uh, it was an auction and I made a decision that I wasn't going to overpay for any outfielders and I ended up getting JD Martinez and Nelson Cruz who were coming off of pretty uh well, uninspiring years, shall we say. And since the time I drafted Nelson Cruz in that draft, he's been nothing but great. I tried to draft him every year, and if the, in the years that I got him, I'm glad I did. And in the years I didn't get him, I'm sad I didn't. Uh, I, I don't know how he's, what, 60 years old now or something like that. And I'll bet you next year when the auction starts, if he's in the American League, you can bet I'll be looking real hard at Nelson Cruz. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, he's uh... 
he fit that mold so well that David Ortiz was in, where you were like, I don't care if he qualifies it only at utility. This dude jacks this many home runs on a regular basis. So I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, the other guy who I would say who, who I actually kind of jumped off that bandwagon and, and just stopped investing in him and actually kind of regret uh, not sticking with him would be uh, Hyunjin Ryu. Um, you know, he just injuries always, always just crush. Every time he pitched, he, he would look good. He would look solid and then he would get hurt and then he'd be out for an extended period of time. And, you know, finally I was like, listen, I just, I just can't take this anymore with this guy. And I stopped investing in him and I stopped paying attention to him. And, uh, you know, now all of a sudden you look at him this year and he's like Cy Young candidate. Yeah, question of putting it all together. And an, another guy in the same mold on the offensive side is Shinsu Chu, a guy that, uh, you know, one of those, uh, there's somebody, I can't think of who it is, who has a strategy he calls the Raul Abanez All-Stars. And it's all those $14 outfielders who've been around for a million years and everybody thinks, nah, it can't happen again. But it always does. And if you have five of those guys in your outfield, uh, you're going to win a lot of leagues because the, what, year in, year out, it's, you know, 24 home runs, 275, 280 batting average, lots of RBIs, lots of counting stats, and sometimes if it's the if it's a stolen base guy, you get those too. I think they're, despite all the analysis that we do, Howard, and all the cleverness that we bring to bear on those analyses, sometimes we just miss these kind of get along to go along, you know, Chrysler K car type of guys who just keep chugging along. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's one of the detriments of being involved in this industry is that you get so caught up in the whole new flavor of the week. You know, we're always sitting here scouring the waiver wire to, to write about players and, you know, and to talk up players and give people suggestions of different directions they can go in that, yeah, it becomes like all of a sudden those, you know, those veterans who fall to the wayside and, you know, and people stop paying attention to them. I feel like Michael Brantley is kind of that guy right now, you know, in that Shinsu Chu uh, kind of mold where, you know, you look at a guy and, um, you know, there, there, were, there were issues with injuries and, you know, coming back from, you know, a slow recovery, things like that, where people just kind of forget about him and, you start looking towards that flavor of the week or who's the next big call-up, and please let's get some Bo Bichette into our lineups like that. That we do. We overlook so many of those, just those, those, you know. If they were pitchers, we'd call them crafty veterans, you know. It's like the, like the Jamie Moyers of hitting. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it, uh, because guys like that, often t uh, serve as the foundation of leagues. Uh, I was just reviewing uh, Raul Abanez's record from the time he was 33 till the time he was 37 or 38. It was like between 20 and 35 home runs every year, about one. And I can bet you that in most of those years, he didn't go for anywhere near the 22 or $24 that he probably should have because people go, hey, Raul Abanez, old guy, you know, been around a million years, got to fall off the table one of these years, right? And and one of those years you would have been right, but most of the other ones he was, you know, 25 home runs, 100 RBIs, regular as clockwork. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's always always gaining value during your drafts because people just kind of put the push those guys aside. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's that debate of proven talent versus youth and upside and we're just we're in such a we're in such a spot right now, or have been for the last 
uh, almost two decades now. I guess it was <laughs> ever since Pujols emerged from virtually out of nowhere in 2001. Uh, I think the fantasy community has, you know, increased its minor league and, and you know, youth upside coverage to a point where, you know, everybody wants to be that person who discovers the next Pujols, who drafts the next Trout, who discovers the next Clayton Kershaw. And I think that that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a strategy that you need to kind of keep in the back of your mind when you are playing so that you do get the Shinsu Chus and the Raul Abanez and the Jamie Moyers because you can build a very well-balanced team that way. It's not sexy, but it can still win a championship. And Ray Murphy will kill me if I don't mention that uh, Albert Pujols was the star of the Arizona Fall League, and a whole bunch of people who attended First Pitch Arizona saw him up close and personal and got in on the ground floor. Mike Trout, too. I was at the uh, the year that uh, Mike Trout and uh, and uh, Bryce Harper were on the same team, batting 3-4 in their, in their lineups, and got to see Mike Trout and thought, yeah, this kid looks like he can play. And... Unfortunately, in uh, in the league where I could have had him, he was already spoken for because we had deep uh, farm leagues. But first pitch, Arizona. Think about it. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM. And Howard, we're at the point in the fantasy season because of the trade deadline in big league baseball where most fantasy owners are at least thinking about making some trades. Uh, how active are you in your fantasy baseball trade markets? You know, I always I try to remain as active as I possibly can. I'm I'm active enough to always make some improvements on the teams in leagues in, in leagues where I'm when I'm when I'm out of it. Like let's say AL Tout Wars, for example. I've been out of it for a little while. I don't have fab budget to play around with here. The best I can hope for is that I, I go past Chris List and I and I actually win that side bet with him. But I mean. <clears throat> what I always try to do, and, and I make it a point to to be like this, in leagues where I'm out of it, I always let everybody know, listen, you come to me with a fair deal. Players are available. You have to just offer it up. It's got to be a fair deal. It's got to be a legitimate deal. And, uh, and go from there. And so I've made a bunch of trades in leagues where, I, you know, I am out of it. And so, you know, I try to stay as active as I possibly can but it gets, uh, it gets tough sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Well, you and I made a pretty big deal recently in uh, our Tout League, and it involved you, uh, who are not going to challenge for a title, and me, who, who is in a position, I'm fourth, and you're second or third from the end. But a lot of guys in leagues say that uh, a, a second division team shouldn't be allowed or shouldn't want to trade with a first division team because a, uh, a second half team is shouldn't be affecting the overall race. I've never bought that ever because I think your job as a fantasy owner in your league is to try your hardest all the time to be gaining points. And if it means you're only moving from 10th to 9th or from, you know, 8th to 7th, so be it, man. You got to you got to keep trying is what I believe and and apparently some people don't believe it and I understand that. What do you think we should be doing as far as owners in leagues? To address the issue of second half guys dealing with first half guys, is it um, we did it, and apparently you think that was okay? But what do you say to guys who say uh, no, it's not okay? Well, I, I don't understand why you wouldn't think it's okay. I mean, that's you know, I, listen, I, you know, people get crazy when there's when there's an entrance fee involved. That's really what it comes down to the most is that people sit there 
and they and they eyeball the money, and that's their priority. And they don't look at trades uh, from an objective point of view. All they do is they look at how this trade uh, affects somebody else. Now, let's take your trade, you know, our trade together here. You know, I got everything out of the deal that I needed to get to help me out with, you know, uh, possible fab issues for next year and innings limits problems, and I didn't want to, you know, start off next season in the hole losing fab budget because I, you know, I finished dead last in a bunch of categories because I didn't make the innings minimum. So probably the biggest issue that people have is that they just don't know how to objectively look at a deal and and see. Now, again, to me, I think that the onus really falls on the person who is seeking out the trade. In this case, you. You know, if you're coming to me for this deal and you want these guys, it was up to you to come to me and say, well, listen, this is a fair trade and this is this is where you, you know, you end up increasing in points. And even if you're out of it, uh, that, that all of a sudden your, your team is what, dead? That you shouldn't be, those players shouldn't be available to anybody? I just, I don't believe in that. Geez, Howard, this has been great so far. Can we take a little breather? Going to get in some National League and American League news with uh, Nick and with Jock here. And we'll come back in a few minutes and continue talking about the Major League trade deadline. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Patrick. Howard Bender hosts the Fantasy Alarm program on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio every weekday from 4 to 6 Eastern, and he writes for FantasyAlarm.com. He'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch news reports on player news from the National League and the American League. It's Nick and Jock coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me take a minute here to bang your ear holes about one of my favorite topics, international tariffs and trade. Nah, just kidding. I want to bring you up to speed on First Pitch Arizona, Baseball HQ's Fantasy Baseball Symposium at the Arizona Fall League. First Pitch is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year with a new hotel and new dates, but with the same extraordinary package of baseball, presentations, baseball, expert panel sessions, baseball, workshops, baseball, drafts, baseball, and one other thing. Oh yeah, baseball. I've been to First Pitch Arizona maybe a dozen times, and I can tell you firsthand there's absolutely nothing like it for the dedicated fantasy baseball owner. Of course, the main drawing card is the formal sessions, panel discussions and expert presentations by some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry, as well as guys like me. But the real fun is after the presentations are over, and you can approach these experts, hit them up for advice, talk about strategy, discuss the prospects you're seeing every afternoon in the Arizona Fall League games. Hey, you can even offer to buy me, I mean them, a beer or two. Or more, you know, who am I to stand in the way of hospitality? The fun at first pitch always continues in the evenings, and this year there's the added spice of Major League Playoff games. There's nothing like watching playoff baseball on the big screen and talking baseball with a bunch of other fantasy owners just like you. I've met a ton of people at First Pitch Arizona who are still among my closest friends. Now you'll want to start thinking about this and getting out your calendar pretty quickly because this year's First Pitch Arizona Symposium takes place earlier than ever. It's usually been around Halloween, but this year it runs from October 10th through the 13th, and it's at a new conference venue, the beautiful Delta Phoenix Mesa, a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho-Cam Stadium and less than half an hour from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. We even have a special conference hotel rate, and when I checked it was at least $40 cheaper than the best online prices, and that's in Canadian money. 
If you're a fantasy owner who takes the game seriously and who likes to have fun, there's no better way to spend a long weekend than at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to the 13th in Mesa, Arizona. Find out more by going to baseballhq.com slash first-pitch-arizona or just go to the HQ homepage and click on the bright orange logo over there on the right just underneath the HQ radio logo. Check it out. Get in early to take advantage of some early bird discounts. It's First Pitch Arizona. It's October 10th to 13th. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with the American League News. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. A busy uh, week that uh, came all at once. Yeah, it was indeed. A busy week that looked like it was going to be quiet and then suddenly things exploded at the uh, at the trade deadline. Well, you know, when I read about the uh, all the coverage of the deadline action, uh, most people say the biggest deal here was the Zach Greinke trade, which really reinforces Houston's position. But for me, the biggest deal of the day from a National League perspective was the three-way whopper with uh, Trevor Bauer going to Cincinnati, Yaziel Puig and Fran Reyes going to Cleveland, leaving Cincinnati, and... Uh, of course, some other moving parts there, but uh, this is, seems to me a more impactful deal from a National League perspective only. Uh, how does the move affect Bauer's fantasy value? Let's start there. Well, Bauer will certainly move right into the into the Cincinnati rotation. He'll replace uh, departed right-handed pitcher Tanner Rourke, who went to Oakland in another deadline deal. And this gives Cincinnati the makings of a very solid rotation with Bauer and Louis Castillo and Sonny Gray and Anthony Scafani. Their combined ERA this season is 3.5. Combined whip is 1.2, uh, combined dom of 10.3 strikeouts per nine innings, and a command ratio of three strikeouts per walk. Uh, an excellent rotation with the addition of Bauer in Cleveland. Home runs could be an issue there. He's been a 1.3 home run per nine guy this season, and he goes from progressive field to Great American Ballpark. Uh, both parks are tough on pitchers for left-handed power, but uh, Cleveland suppressed righty power by uh, 6%, while Great American boosts right-handed hitting by 17 percent uh so all for overall runs perspective please actually plays more favorably for hitters and the smaller cincinnati park also restricts ba a little more especially for left-handed hitters uh, bauer has has uh this season been unable to sustain the control and command gains he displayed in 2018 uh his control and command have slipped to his pre-2016 levels his xcra has ballooned to nearly a full run higher than uh, last year's two career best in 2018. Uh, a lot will depend on how he can get along with the coaching staff in Cincinnati. This is a, a pitcher who needs to be uh, needs to be coached, but he's a very self-driven pitcher, very strong ideas about how he should pitch. Uh, that can conflict sometimes with the coaches uh, to the point where he may fatly go along or refuse to go along with their instructions or suggestions or throw the ball over the wall when he gets, uh, gets upset about something. So, uh, you know, a... a could be a, it's going to be a learning situation, I think, for Bauer in Cincinnati and probably for the coaches there as well. Meanwhile, Nick, uh, Puig's departure from Cincinnati also reshapes the outfield there. Who are the beneficiaries? There'll be additional playing time for all of Cincinnati's outfielders. Josh Van Meter, uh, Philip Irvin, Jesse Winker. Uh, Tom Kebert sees Van Meter likely getting being the big playing time winner here with a 65% game in playing time. Uh, Van Meter has shown power, patience, a line drive stroke in 77 at-bats, 312 average, four home runs, 10 RBIs, and 
even stole a couple of bases. In the minors, he also showed very good discipline, drawing walks at about 10% of his plate appearances, keeping strikeouts below 20% uh, in every minor league season except one. I've always had my eye on outfielder Philip Irvin, and I was wondering if he might ever get a chance. Uh, I thought maybe this was the chance. Uh, I think Van Meter's probably the bigger beneficiary, but uh, where does Philip Irvin fit in in all of this? Well, Irvin is also impressed in a small sample after shuttling between Cincinnati and AAA earlier this season. A uh, brief major league career, just over 400 big league plate appearances, as at 278 with a lot of line drives, 12 homers, 13 stolen bases, uh, proven himself to be a, a southpaw masher, but his struggle this season versus right-handed pitchers, especially with striking out. So overall production this season has been strong. I like the 12 home runs, 13 stolen bases over those 400 big league appearances, even accounting for the difficulties with uh, right-handed pitching. He seems to be making a little progress in that department. And Nick, if you take 400 big league plate appearances and prorate to 600, you're looking at a, at a player who's pretty close to a 2020 guy. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, you know, that that gets very close. So uh, depending upon how much, how he can hit against right-handed pitching, uh, that guy could have some, some utility, especially if you can move him in and out of your lineup, uh, depending upon how many left-handers they're, they're facing that particular week. And this raises a, a question for me, Nick, and I'm curious what you think of it is, over the years, the increasing specialization where guys who couldn't hit left-handed or right-handed pitching were just kept out of the lineup in those situations and put into these pure platoon roles. And there was an argument being made that how's the guy ever supposed to learn to hit the uh, same hand pitching if he never gets to see the same hand pitching. And that maybe if they put those kind of hitters in there and let them take their lumps, especially in a situation where the team is not, you know, aspiring to get to the playoffs or the world series and maybe a, a really good athlete, a good young hitter, will figure things out against the same side, uh, same hand pitching. And and now with the shorter benches, I wonder if that might be an opportunity for a guy like Philip Irvin to get more at bats against right-handed pitching and figure it out. Yeah, it certainly might be. You know, it's the kind of thing that if you're out of the playoff hunt and don't think you're going anywhere, you can certainly uh, let a guy like that work in game situations uh, on an area where he's where he's weak. Uh, so that's that's certainly a possibility. We mentioned the Zach Grinke deal. We'll get to that in a second. But I was curious what you thought about uh, relief pitcher Shane Green moving from the Tigers to Atlanta for a couple of minor leaguers. The early analysis, including Baseball HQ's Phil Hertz in playing time today, says it's obvious Green is going to replace Luke Jackson in the closer role. Is that how you read it? Oh, yeah, very definitely. Green will almost certainly become Atlanta's closer. Uh, and overall, the move should really enhance his value. He's had surprisingly good numbers this season after a few years with the RAs of the fives. He's down to 1.18 this year, a sparkling 0.87 whip. Also has boosted his DOM by about a strikeout per inning to 10.2, uh, a command of 3.6 uh, strikeouts per walk, and BPV of 139, definitely closer worthy. So he's having having an outstanding season. Uh, hit rate at 18%, and expected ERA of 3.53, suggests that keeping his ERA as low as it is is not sustainable. Uh, but those numbers level out of a long sample, so in the short run, he could still maintain those excellent numbers uh, for for a, a, for a short time. Atlanta's home ballpark is actually less hitter-friendly than Detroit, so he gets a bit of help there. Atlanta's defense should be more solid as well. That will also help. Uh, and, of course, we know that more saves accrue to teams with more wins, and moving to first place Atlanta from last place Detroit uh, 
can't uh, has to help in that regard. So I think Green uh, is in a good situation in Atlanta, and I think definitely is likely to become the closer there. The, the thing that worried me, and I'm a Shane Green owner, and I'm pretty happy about this. Uh, the thing that worried me, of course, was they also acquired a couple of other relief pitchers, including Mark Melanson, a former closer. So it looks like uh, uh, the way to, I think, to read it is that Melanson is going to be a setup guy. That's They wanted to solidify the overall bullpen, but uh, I don't know that Shane Green's going to have a super long leash either. I think that's true. I mean, Atlanta has, has serious playoff aspirations, and so... Uh, they're not going to give Green a long leash if he begins to uh, to struggle in the National League. Uh, they've got guys at, at this point after the trade deadline that they can move into the closer role uh, and replace him. So he's going to have to produce uh, from the get-go. Arizona made some deals that really reshaped their pitching rotation, starting, of course, with the stunning last-minute news that ace Zach Greinke is on his way out of town and, in fact, out of the National League. I'll ask Jock Thompson in a minute about Greinke's fate in Houston, but in the meantime, what is Arizona going to do without their ace? Well, you know, Greinke's been a true ace for the Diamondbacks during his tenure, a 55-29 record, 113 starts, a walk rate just under 2, strikeout rate just under 9, uh, playing time today, Rob Carroll says Granke's departure uh, and some train deadline arrivals have really redefined that entire rotation. It looks like the staff ace will now be strikeout specialist Robbie Ray. Rotation will include newcomers Mike Leake, Zach Galen, Merrill Kelly, and Taylor Clark. Uh, outside of Ray, all those guys have expected ERAs north of four. Clark actually above five, uh, and his actual ERA kind of matches that. Not a lot of help here. Elite Kelly and Clark will not be potent sources of strikeouts. On uh, on his good side, Leak has shown some flashes this season of, well, let's call it slightly above averageness, but what about him as a fantasy asset just on volume? Well, BaseballHQ.com's Brant Chesser summarized recently, Leak provides average production, a series of uh, 500-ish seasons, 6.5 DOM, low 4s ERA. It made him pretty rich, but not really helped fantasy owners very much. Uh, he's a classic innings eater. Hasn't started fewer than 30 games in a season since 2012. Has 137 innings and 22 starts this season. Lead the majors with two complete games. Uh, posting the best control of his career, 1.2 uh, walkouts, uh, 1.2 walks per nine innings, but allowing the most hits in Major League Baseball. Already tying his season for the most long balls allowed at 26. The move from Safeco to Chase Field is pretty much a wash. Uh, and so I guess you can expect him to continue being very average. And I think we should point out that sometimes an average guy can be a help. And the guy that pops into my mind when we talk about this is Rick Porcello in Boston. I know he's not a National League guy, but hear me out. Porcello is not a great pitcher, but he throws a lot of innings. And because he throws a lot of innings, his somewhat low strikeouts per nine rate actually works out to be pretty good because he gets so many more innings than a guy who has, you know, a two strikeout per nine advantage, but doesn't throw nearly as many. There's two ways of piling up strikeouts. Uh, method number one is have a really high strikeout ratio and strike out lots of guys while you're in there. But method number two is strike out a few less per nine innings, but throw a lot more innings than everybody else. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly makes sense. Uh, that's, uh, you're, you're absolutely right about that particular analysis. So, you know, the more innings a guy throws, the more strikeouts he's going to get, even if he's not a big strikeout pitcher. Uh, so that makes sense. So far this year, uh, Mike Leake is 17.4 strikeout percentage. That's 
that's not great. It's not bad either. And uh, his actual strikeout total is 100. He's got a uh, hundred strikeouts this year, which is you know not bad at this stage of the year. If you give him another two months, that's another fifty or so at the same pace. One hundred fifty strikeouts is is not horrible. No, it's not. I mean, that's the kind of thing that can be very useful on a fantasy staff uh, in that particular category. So no, it's not. It's not awful. He's not going to lead the league in strikeouts, but as you said, the number when he puts up a lot of innings, he'll get more strikeouts, and it's uh, it's. Uh, it does something positive for your fantasy team. Thing about, uh, I had Mike Leake on my team up till a few days ago. I traded him, but uh, I was pretty happy. I didn't get all the strikeouts because I viewed Mike Leake as the kind of guy you stream in and out. And, uh, you know, when he was going up against Houston, uh, I don't think so. Even though he actually had a pretty good start against Houston. But as a streamer, he's got some real potential. As a strikeout volume guy, he has some potential. And in this day and age, he's got, what, ERAs around 4-something, 420 or something. 10 years ago, Nick, we wouldn't even think of rostering a starter with a 427 ERA. These days, eh, I'm not. I'm not so worried. The days of 427 ERA is, is passable. I put in a bid in a mixed league a few weeks ago on Zach Gallen. He was then pitching for Miami. Now, of course, traded over to Arizona. How interesting do you think he is in Arizona? I think the word here is intriguing. Uh, he has an ERA that's under three. Expected uh, ERA run and a half higher, in large part because of an 80% strand rate. Uh, WHIP is under 1.2. Uh, plus, he's been fanning almost 11 batters per nine innings, uh, although a, a walk rate uh, near near or five, closer to five than three. So, command ratio of 2.4 strikeouts or 2.4 uh, strikeouts per nine, not where we like it. Uh, uh, walking more guys than we'd like to see. Uh, Galen was not among the Marlins' top prospects entering 2019, but was absolutely lights out uh, in the second season of AAA. 1.77 ERA, 0.71 WHIP. Uh, before making his major league debut in June. Uh, and as you would expect, he slowed down against uh, the game's toughest competition, but not a lot. Seven starts from Miami allowed three earned runs only once uh, through at least five innings and six of those outings. Uh, been able to maintain most of his dom, 10.7 in the in the majors. Control hasn't been nearly as tight as it was before his promotion at 4.5 walks per nine innings. Um, as he moves to Arizona, he'll find himself in a less forgiving ballpark for offense. So, uh, his uh, 0.7 home runs per nine may be put to the test very quickly. Uh, at this point, he's just shy of his 24th birthday. Will become the youngest member of the Diamondbacks rotation. I think he's worth a gamble at this point in the season and definitely worth a play in keeper leagues. And if anybody's wondering about Luke Weaver, he's injured, but he's expected back this month. Although the injury was a strain of his ulnar collateral ligament, which is the Tommy John ligament. So I think putting any money on Luke Weaver might be considered a speculation. What about the two pitching prospects Arizona acquired in the trade with Houston, uh, Bukoskis and Corbin Martin? Well, the deal included two of Houston's top right-handed pitching prospects, J.B. Bukoskis and uh, Corbin Martin, both rated as 8C prospects by BaseballHQ.com prior to the season. Martin had Tommy John surgery in early July, so you won't see him this season. Uh, Bukowskis has shown excellent raw stuff in AA, especially a mid-90s heater and a solid changeup, but he does issue a lot of walks, six uh, walks per nine innings in AA this season. So it doesn't look like he'll be helping in the big leagues this year, uh, but certainly somebody to keep your eye on. The Cubs acquired uh, outfielder Nick Castellanos from Detroit uh, as the Detroit sell-off continued. Where does Castellanos fit into the Cubs' plans, and how excited are we about him as a potential contributor for fantasy? 
Well, you know, right-handed, uh, right-handed batter, uh, center fielder Albert Amora is likely the playing time loser here. Uh, Jason Hayward will get increased center field playing time with the addition of uh, a right fielder in Castellanos. Uh, Hayward's playing time could also dip a little bit. Uh, this acquisition likely means less outfield playing time for Chris Bryant, allowing him to, to uh, play more time at third base. So uh, Castellanos has been a productive hitter, uh, not sustained the power he's displayed in previous seasons, but his skills have remained quite similar. Uh, there's some hope that his power and skills production can climb uh, in the later part of the season. Yeah, I, I wonder to a certain extent, of course, the, the park in Detroit is not favorable for power. And I wonder to, to what extent, you know, just all that losing, all that losing must get a guy down after a while. You know, Castellanos, even in Detroit, was a mid-20s, low-20s type of home run guy the last few years. This year, was down around 11. He's on pace for about 15. I wonder if you know, the Cubs is a little friendlier of a park. Maybe there's a little surge coming here for Nicholas Castellanos. Yeah, you know, there certainly is that possibility. I mean, someone I would put on my radar, especially in an only league at this point, uh, depending upon your outfield situation. Not a guy you want to dump all your fab dollars on, but uh, someone to certainly keep your eye on. And if you've got a weak spot in the outfield, Castellanos could provide some, uh, 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 could provide a, a, a bit of a pump. So uh, certainly someone to, to look at. And finally, some big changes in the Mets rotation. They get rid of Jason Vargas to Philadelphia, acquire Marcus Stroman from Toronto in one of the more surprising moves at the deadline or near the deadline. Uh, what happens now with the Mets rotation? Well, Stroman in and Jason Vargas out. Uh, that has to be a net win for the Mets. Uh, Stroman's had a really excellent season given the numbers, but underlying skills warrant some caution. Uh, a sub-3 ERA is not backed up by a 4-plus expected ERA. So, uh, again, somebody to to uh, take with a note of caution as he moves into the National League. A big part benefit, though, Although, as an extreme ground baller, Stroman was not really prone to home runs, only seven home runs per nine innings. So, uh, someone I think to, to look at uh, in National Leagues, he would be uh, probably less exciting than some of the other people who came over. Vargas, eh, uh, in New York, okay. In Philly, not so much. Uh, I just kind of worry about Vargas in Philly. Yeah, Vargas is another one of those guys. He's he's like Mike Leake, but maybe not quite as good. He had that one big year a couple of years ago, you remember, uh, pitching for Kansas City, and all of a sudden he came out of nowhere and he looked like the second coming of Brett Saberhagen for a while. But baseball is very unforgiving of long sample runs, and, uh, of course, Jason Vargas reverted to form, and he became, you know, not quite as good a, a pitcher as Mike Leake, and that's really what you have to expect, although anything can happen. Right, yeah, very definitely. And one thing to think about as guys change leagues is they're also going into a situation where uh, there's less of a book on them than there was when they were in the other league. And so they may have a few a few weeks of a good run until somebody figures out, here's the scouting report I can get from the league they were in, and uh, here's how you deal with them. And that applies to both hitters and pitchers. It does. Uh, 2016, a 225 ERA and 092 whip uh, for Kansas City and uh very a very small handful of games, but uh, of course he couldn't sustain that, and I doubt that moving to Philadelphia is going to make any huge improvement in Jason Vargas's numbers. And Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, so much news we couldn't get to, but there's only so much time in the week. We'll talk to you again in another week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst for BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hey, PD. How you doing? 
I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. A very interesting trade deadline we can talk about. Lots of things going on in the American League. And the best player that changed leagues goes to the American League. Zach Greinke goes to Houston, of course. Fills one of two pretty big rotation holes that the uh, Astros were trying to figure out what to do because of injuries that we talked about last week. And the Astros really, I think, Jock, didn't give up anybody that was projected to help them down the stretcher in the playoffs this year. So it's no surprise. Most observers think Houston was one of the two teams that really helped themselves a lot. Uh, you covered all of this action and Houston's other moves in playing time today. You covered the longer term outlook in playing time tomorrow. There's more to this trade than just the 2019 playoffs, right? Let's start with Granke. Yeah, there really was is more to this trade. This wasn't a rental move. Granke's under control through 2021. And I noted last week in, uh, in our PT tomorrow space, playing time tomorrow, that Garrett Cole's a Scott Boris client and he projects to be the best free agent pitcher to be on the market uh, this coming offseason. He wasn't expected to sign a long-term extension in Houston this winter without testing the market. And now he's unlikely to at all, given the, that the Astros picked up, I think, almost $60 million of Grinke's $70-plus million remaining on his salary between uh, now and, uh, now and uh, the end of it. Uh, and yeah, b- best player trading leagues. Grinke fills one of the rotation spots we talked about. Uh, they've been round-robin for the past two, three weeks since Colin McHugh and Brad Peek went on the DL. Um, he's got a 290 ERA with uh, with uh, Arizona sub one whip, six uh, four command uh, through 135 innings. He's been consistent all year. I don't expect much regression here, even in the DH league. If you're in the AL league, you got to grab Zach Greinke or make an effort to. I think that's exactly right. I don't think the the uh, the change in parks. Uh, we're going to talk about that with uh, Todd Zola a little later on as well. Not as significant as a lot of people seem to think. And meanwhile, yeah, you mentioned that uh, Granky's been very consistent all year. I, I'll go you one further. He's had a very excellent, consistent career, and there's no reason, uh, given even given his he's what 35 or he's around the same age as Verlander, within a few months. And uh, I think that uh, there's no reason to expect that Granky will be anything other than hugely successful in, in Houston. Yep. All you got to do is go to our history page and look at the years, uh, uh, run, running them down, uh, wins, ERA, uh, uh, whip, everything. He's, uh, he's, he's more than justified his, uh, his owner's uh, bid prices and, uh, and confidence over these past few years. He's going to do the same thing in the American League. Of course, the one drawback for him and maybe for a bit of his production is he won't be hitting. And he's actually a pretty good hitter, not just for a pitcher, but he's a pretty good hitter in general. I wonder if he'll pinch hit in Houston. Probably not, uh, but it'd be interesting to watch. Houston also picked up Aaron Sanchez and Joe Biagini from Toronto. They gave back uh, outfielder Derek Fisher, another guy that had no role in their plans for the stretch driver of the playoffs. Sanchez had been a starter for the Blue Jays. He'd been really struggling. And there are questions as to the role he's going to assume in Houston, especially as their injured players start coming back. But there's still some uncertainty about that last uh, rotation spot. What's going on here with Aaron Sanchez? Yeah, but uh, just before um, we went on the air here, um, I, I checked it out, and apparently Sanchez has been announced to be the starter at least this Saturday against Seattle uh, as Jose Urquidy uh, vacates the number five spot for now and returns to AAA. But the Astros still have uh, Peacock, uh, um, who's had some shoulder discomfort. He is scheduled, from what I understand, to start a rehab uh, shortly. And they still like Urquidy, who's been pretty impressive, though a little inconsistent in his major league starts to date, uh, depending on how everyone does. It actually wouldn't surprise me to see any of these names as the number five or even in the pen when the dust settles over these next few weeks. Uh, 
Peacock was terrific out of the pen last year, and many observers think that Sanchez could be a force there. Uh, keep in mind that Ryan Presley's on the DL. He's the setup man extraordinaire for the Astros. He's been very good this year. And the postseason is all about multi-inning bullpen guys, so they may opt eventually to put uh, Sanchez in the uh, in the pen. Yeah, that will be interesting to watch. The other possibility, too, I think, is as they get closer to the playoffs, they're running away with their division, of course. They're a lock. Uh, and depending on where they sit in the overall, because they want to protect that home field advantage to the best of their ability, I wouldn't be surprised to see them starting to slow down on the innings for even for Verlander and Granke and Garrett Cole, because uh, there's no reason to ride these guys like a, like a runaway horse here when they could possibly say, look, instead of seven innings a night, we're going to move you back to six, which would create some open innings for guys like, uh, well, Aaron Sanchez to come up and fill in uh, and maybe even take a spot start here and there to get these guys rested and online and ready to go for the playoffs. Oh, exactly. This is all about postseason preparation for the most part now for the Astros. Yeah, they still got to win their division, and, and it looks like Oakland, uh, Oakland's in pretty decent position to to get to get a wild card spot, but uh, um, I think you're right. I think uh, I think it's more setting up both your rotation and who are going to be the the multi inning guys coming in out of the pen when the postseason begins. And. Don't be asleep on Joe Biagini either. He was a pretty effective pitcher in Toronto. Not the world's greatest relief pitcher or anything, but he shouldered the load for uh, you know multiple innings here and there uh, in Toronto. And I'm curious, just briefly, Derek Fisher obviously going to get a pretty good shot in Toronto as well, I should think. Yeah, uh, I, I read something where um, I think Toronto was saying that uh, Fisher's going to get a lot of time in center field and right field. Uh, he's got good skills. It's, he's never produced ex- uh, in, in his limited opportunities in, in the majors. But uh, Toronto's happy with Lourdes Gurriel in left field. They don't want to interrupt anything there. But they're still auditioning their guys in center and right. There's nobody who's really run with it there. Um, so Fisher's going to get a crack. So if, if you need offense, Derek Fisher is, a, is an interesting sleeper to have. And I should say Randall Gritchick was signed this year to a five-year extension, so I expect they're going to find some place for him probably in right field. Uh, so if Fisher can handle the defensive side of things in center, that could solidify the Jays. Of course, he's going to have to hit as well, but they're quietly shaping up to be a pretty useful team offensively. The question is going to be with their pitching because they gave it all away at the trading deadline this time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Houston, by the way, also stole a minor league outfielder from the Jays organization. His name is Cal Stevenson, and if you're playing Dynasty or Long long-term keeper keep the name Cal Stevenson in mind the Astros are really smart about the guys they acquire and uh, Cal Stevenson interested them he should interest you Uh, the other American League club that really seemed to help itself I thought was Cleveland they picked up two legitimate offensive forces in Yaziel Puig from Cincinnati Fran Moraes from San Diego that was that big three-team deal with uh, Trevor Trevor Bauer at the center of it we've discussed this a number of times this season jock offensive production has been Cleveland's Achilles heel. They just haven't been able to get anything, especially out of their outfield. But with these additions and the sudden turnaround of Jose Ramirez, things are looking a little sharper. What's the playing time situation in Cleveland? Well, Puig was in right field and Reyes at DH in in their first game with Cleveland, and and that's where they project most of the time, uh, if not every day, uh, as regulars for the remainder of 2019. Obviously, this squeezes a lot of names. Uh, Jake Bowers was sent to AAA. Greg Allen was also demoted. Uh, Both will be back with September roster expansion, if not sooner, as as injury replacements. They've obviously lost playing time, as has Jordan Luplo, but along with uh, Granke Puig and Reyes are, are the two 
best new to the AL players that uh, AL owners should snap up. Cleveland's lineup looks really rejuvenated, particularly with the uh, with the turnaround of Jose Ramirez. Uh, they should do fine offensively right now. It is an interesting thing because with. Puig may have some uh, pretty good opportunities there to to ring up some counting stats in a lineup that all of a sudden looks really strong. And and it's funny to think, isn't it, Jock, that at the start of the year, when we looked at Cleveland, we thought fantastic rotation, pretty good bullpen, especially at the back end, lots of offensive questions. And now it's exactly the opposite. Looks like the offense is going to take care of itself here, but Trevor Bauer's gone. They've lost uh, a couple of guys to injury, including Danny Kluber. Uh, uh, Carrasco, of course, to his uh, cancer diagnosis. How is Cleveland going to now balance the strong offense that they've created and shore up what used to be a strength and is now not a strength on the mound? Yeah, this thing has kind of been turned on its head, hasn't it, uh, with all the pitching injuries. Uh, they're going to try to make do, I think, until Corey Kluber returns. He should be ready for a minor league rehab stint in another week or two. And if all goes well, he could be pitching in Cleveland again uh, by or before the end of August or early September. Obviously, this bet isn't without risk because Kluber looked awful early in the season before his forearm was, was fractured by a line drive. Cleveland also has uh, Carlos Carrasco working through a throwing working uh through a, 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 um, some throwing exercises after being diagnosed with leukemia. There's, there's a lot more uncertainty there. Um, Logan Allen was a part of this return coming over from San Diego. The, the tribe started Danny Salazar in his first start in about, the, gosh, more than a year or two. Um, he struggled with all kinds of injuries. He wasn't very impressive, and apparently he now has a groin problem. He may be headed back for the DL. Um, they have uh, uh, behind Mike Clevenger and Shane Bieber, uh, Zach Plesak has looked decent, though he's spraying a bit. Uh, you've got Adam Plutko, and, and who knows what else is going to happen. So, yeah, they've got some issues at the back of their rotation. It's going to be a really interesting development if Cleveland can get to the playoffs and they're going to have to win the division to do that. I think that's pretty clear at this point, although they fought their way into contention, but it, I, I would bet that their easiest path, shall we say, is to catch up with Minnesota and, and get that division. If they do, and we know that you can get by in the playoffs with only three t- useful top starters, and then you can mix and match as Houston proved in winning the uh, world series. And this is a, a a new way of playing baseball in the fall that has very little relationship to how they play during the regular season. And their willingness to deal Bauer, I thought, he was a workhorse for them. A lot of innings pitched and pretty good quality innings. And it feels to me the fact that they were willing to give him up, Jock, Cleveland is pretty confident that something good is going to happen with Carrasco and or Kluber and or Salazar, although the Salazar news is uh, diminishing that idea a bit. And as we discussed, they got what they needed, some added pop from their outfield and DH slots. So I think they did real well at this deadline. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, I think they had to do what they did. Uh, They had to take this gamble because they didn't have injured offensive players returning. Uh, Again, if if that was Cleveland's mindset, I'm not as confident as they are that Kluber or or Salazar is going to return. But uh, I also think that they can actually win a wild card spot behind Cleveland because the Yankees did nothing to help themselves and and neither did Boston. Um, It's going to be fascinating to see what happens uh, in the remaining weeks in August and September. Well, a team that's going to have to 
definitely going to have to get into the playoffs via the wild card is the Oakland A's, and they stayed real busy at the deadline. They acquired a starter, Homer Bailey and Jake Diekman from Kansas City just before the deadline. Diekman's a lefty reliever. They picked up Tanner Roark right before the deadline as well. You talked about the A's crowdsourcing their pitching down the stretch and in the playoffs in playing time tomorrow where you cover the American League West. So tell me what's going on in Oakland, and let's start with the pitching. Well, it's really interesting. I, I don't know how many people realize this, but uh, at least a couple of days ago, they had the eighth best staff ERA in baseball. And that's no small feat considering that uh, the now suspended Frankie Montas and surprise closer Liam Hendricks are the only real names producing standout performances. Uh, Rourke's just another example of a guy the, the, the A's have brought in uh, who has shown that he can pitch effectively if he can avoid uh, fly ball and line drive damage, which is what Oakland's venue does uh, with all that foul space and, uh, and deep alleys. Uh, it does pretty well for pitchers. He had a a 4.24 ERA and a 2.9 command through 21 starts in uh, Cincinnati. Looks like he's going to replace Daniel Menken in the rotation. But as I noticed in in this week's uh, Playing Time Tomorrow column, the club also has a number of interesting arms on the mend and beginning to pitch well in the minors. Uh, notably, Sean Manaya, who's who's been a uh, 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 a starter for the last couple of years before labrum surgery. Uh, he just threw a real good game in AAA. Uh, AJ Puck uh, doesn't have a lot of experience, but a real dominating guy when you talk about uh, multi-inning bullpen arms. He could come in and throw multiple innings, perhaps in the postseason if he were ready. So by September and October, they may be pretty deep pitching-wise and ready for a postseason run. And of course, they hit a hit a lot of home runs, and they got some bad news in that regard. Really bad news, in fact. They lost a breakthrough center fielder Ramon Laureano to a stress fracture in his shin. And of course, there's the immediate loss on defense, where Laureano's speed and throwing arm were really impressive right from his first days in the league. Remember that long throw he made from center field to get the double play, and has kept up that kind of defensive chops ever since. But he's also a loss on offense because he was supplying some surprising power to an offense that really relies on the long ball to score runs. How are they going to replace Ramon Laureano? I'll tell you what, Laureano owner in two leagues here, and he has been really good for the last two months. He's hit well over 200. Uh, he's got 21 homers for the year, 12 stolen bases. Um, he's been particularly good uh, recently. I think he was hitting like 370 in July before he went down. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. In center field, uh, they're not going to miss his bat so much, um, given that Mark Canna's been on fire. Uh, he's going to shuffle over there from right field. The problem is Oakland's corner outfielders look a little anemic right now power-wise. You've got Nick Martini up in Laureano's roster spot. He's a lot like Robbie Grossman, who plays most of the left field most of the time. Um, they're on-base percentage-only kind of players. Chad Pinder's having a poor season. It's going to be interesting to see what Oakland's offense does from here and if they slump, what they do in right field and left field. And I don't know how many options they have, but one thing you can say about guys who are reasonably good at generating on base percentage is that if you put them at the top or near the top of your lineup, the big boppers who come next have somebody to drive in, and that's not nothing. You know, it's a it's at least something of an advantage to be able to put those on base guys ahead of the power guys, whatever power guys they have, and they still have some power guys. Let's not to kid ourselves. Chris Davis is not having a great year, but they can still bash. 
Yeah, um, the, the, the problem with guys like uh, Martini and Grossman is um, from a contact and batting average standpoint, those hits really have to be falling and, and, and they're up and down batting average wise. So if they're hitting like 210 and 220, which Grossman was for the first two months of the season, um, they're not going to do much for you on base percentage wise. Um, now Grossman's turned it around, but again, we're, we're talking about September and, or August and September. So anything can happen in a small sample. Finally, Jock, the Rays made what I found was a bit uh, confusing of an acquisition. They traded to land uh, Jesus Aguiar from Milwaukee, and they stuck him right into the starting lineup. He got a couple of hits, drew a couple of walks. Aguiar hit 35 home runs in 2018. He was an all-star, but boy, how how the mighty fell. Uh, This year, he's been in a platoon situation, hasn't been hitting very much at all. Uh, Matt Dodge wrote this up at uh, playing time today for Baseball HQ. Is there any chance that Jesus Aguilar gets his mojo back in Tampa? I think so. I like Aguilar, and uh, um, um, I, I mean, I, I'm an owner, so I might be a little bit biased. Uh, the interesting thing about his first game in Tampa was that he was a starter versus right-handed pitcher Andrew Kashner, and he did all his damage against righties that that game, which he's done a lot in his career, with the exception of early this year. It's uh, what what I find interesting is that uh, Tampa Bay opted to send out. Uh, left-handed hitting first base DH Nathaniel Lowe, who had been having a terrific July. Uh, I I guess it's not altogether surprising given the way teams lean toward vets as the postseason approaches. But this hints that Aguilar may be used more than just versus lefties exclusively. He probably won't play every day because we know how Tampa Bay likes to mix, mix and match and use versatility. But if he can catch fire, he's been very good in the second half and limited at bats. Uh, in, in a DH league, I like Aguilar's chances. I think he can be productive as well, and uh, his arrival certainly creates a bit of a playing time crowd in that uh, DH first base mix. Uh, I'm a G-Mon Choi owner in my American League only. I'm a little nervous about that because I can see a platoon shaping up pretty easily, and I have Travis Darno in a different league, and I'm a little bit concerned that what they've been doing when he needs a day off from catching is sticking him at first base, but now with uh, Aguiar here, it might be a situation where they say Travis needs a rest, Travis can sit on the bench, which would cost him some playing time and some uh, plate appearances. And you know what's interesting about this whole deal, Jock? When I look at the Baseball HQ depth chart for Tampa, I only see three players who are ticketed for 80% or more of the plate appearances for their positions. Austin Meadows, Tommy Pham, and Kevin Kiermaier. Avisail Garcia and Willie Adamas are around 75%, but all the rest of these guys are 50%, 40%, 35%. Do you think a mixed league owner can look at any of these Tampa part-timers with any confidence that there's a chance that they might increase their playing time? You know, in a word, no. And one of the problems with Tampa Bay is the offense has been slumping over the last month. So, uh, whoever hits is going to play, and, and now we're talking about riding the hot hands. Uh, I, I see the same thing you do on uh, Tampa Bay's playing time page. Um, they do a lot of mixing and matching and versatility and playing the hard hand, hot hands and putting putting players in at different positions. I heard uh, uh, who's Tampa's manager, Kevin Cash, mentioned that he may even use uh, Aguilar at third base. He has some experience there. I, I hope that doesn't happen for Tampa Bay's pitcher's sake. But um, that's kind of the mindset they have. So I don't think anyone anyone who owns the corner infielders and the DHs in Tampa Bay should be too confident. Tampa Bay's list at the Baseball HQ depth chart has 19 names on it. 19 guys who are projected for some amount of playing time. And I think 
If it were me, what I would expect, considering the acquisitions of Aguiar and Eric Sogard, whom they got a little earlier from Toronto, I think there's a better than average chance that a whole bunch of guys, uh, Nate Lowe's already been sent down, but you got other guys like uh, Joey Wendell and uh, Yandy Diaz now and Michael Brasso. All of these kind of guys, when they need to start collapsing their bench because they need to have all the extra pitching they're going to need to get down the stretch with their openers and bulk guys and mix and match and all the kind of stuff they like to do, I can see a lot of these guys getting either sent down or cut even to make room for the extra pitches that they're going to need. And and maybe there's a chance that the Sogards and, and Matt Duffy's and guys that they think they can lean on are going to get leaned on and their playing time may shoot up a bit. Yeah, I, I think the, the one fly in that ointment is September. You've got roster expansion, so they can carry most of those guys, and that's when your playing time really becomes balkanized. But uh, between now and then, you're right. Uh, I don't see I don't see the new acquisition, Sogard and Aguilar, going anywhere. Like I said, I was really surprised they sent down uh, Nathaniel Lowe. He was tearing it up in July. He hit five homers. Uh, he was slugging. Uh, I think his OPS was like over 900. Uh, he'd been having a very good July, but they opted to send him out, so that tells you something. Yeah, and that's the one last thing I'd like to comment on, Jock, and that is sometimes I look at how these moves get made and I scratch my head and say I don't get it. And in the case of Tampa, that's one of those situations. I didn't get why they wanted Eric Sogard. I didn't get really why they wanted Aguiar. But I trust because they, they're a smart organization that they know what they're doing. And, and so I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. The question is, can I exploit that, uh, you know, that, ex, that uh, experience that I have with them being excellent to my fantasy advantage? And I don't see that path at all. Yeah, my, my take is that their offense was spooking them. And like, just like Oakland is crowdsourcing its pitching, Tampa Bay wanted to crowdsource its offense for September and October. I'm sorry, August and September, knowing that they would have an expanded roster in September and they could play the hot hands, the guys that were hitting the best. It's going to be very fun to watch that race. Uh, Tampa Bay is a very imaginative and innovative team. They're willing to try a lot of uh, stuff that we find unusual and good for them, I say. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Jock, I'm looking forward to talking with you again next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Right now, though, time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Big Hurt Injury Analysis column, analyst Matt Cedarholm looks at injuries befalling Max Scherzer, Ken Giles, Dwight Smith Jr., and Josh James. In HQ Scouting, the Daily Call-Ups report looks at players recently promoted to the show, like Houston right-hander Brian Abreu, Detroit catcher Jake Rogers, Cubs right-hander Dwayne Underwood Jr., and all the other recent call-ups. And scouting analyst Chris Blessing looks in-depth at newly acquired San Diego prospect Taylor Trammell, came over from the Cincinnati Reds in that big deal, and Atlanta shortstop prospect Braden Shoemake. And in Rotisserie Gaming, Steve Gardner looks at five resurgent stars who could provide a late-season boost, including Aaron Judge, Aaron Nola, and three other guys not named Aaron. 
And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, News updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis by former big league general manager Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse column. And injury analysis, as I mentioned, in the Big Hurt. As well, Baseball HQ has tools like the player projections updated every day. There are daily dashboards pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, you have expert content, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Howard, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad you, uh, you're you allowing me to stick around here. We, uh, we went through so much stuff there on the, uh, on the fantasy trading that we didn't get a chance to even dive into this MLB trade deadline. It started off as a huge snoozer, and then all of a sudden, bam, you just got punched in the face. Uh, at the deadline yesterday. Yeah, it was quite something to watch. Uh, they were calling it the trade deadline for the longest time, and all of a sudden it ended up being not only one of the most active trade deadline days that I can remember, but a really impactful sort of trade deadline day. Weren't you impressed by the quality of the players that was moving around? And to carry on in the uh, vein of the conversation we were talking about in the Tout Wars trading, um, a lot of these general managers seem to be targeting categories, for want of a better term, and improving their teams by adding exactly what they needed and giving up what they could afford to give up. Yeah, that was, I mean, listen, it was definitely, it was tight. I, you know, from a fantasy perspective, I think the trade deadline was very, very limited. Like, you know, the Granke deal, the Bauer deal, okay, fine. You know, Shane Green goes, uh, you know, to the Braves. That's going to have an impact there. Obviously, you're always going to see some, you know, fantasy impact when there are closers involved. But for the most part, there were so many, like, I mean, I don't even, you can't even say secondary or tertiary players. I mean, real, you know, kind of bottom feeders where it's like, yeah, <clears throat> from a fantasy perspective, I would say that it's very, very, you know, it was, it was very limited. I think it was great in, in baseball reality. Fantasy-wise, um, I'd give it like a C-plus at best. A little more if you're playing primarily or or solely in uh, single league formats because the crossovers really will matter in leagues where you don't get to keep a guy when he crosses over or you do a, can get acquire a guy. So, for instance, uh, uh, Zach Greinke moves from the National League to the American League. He's, he's going to be in Houston the same week that uh, Yaziel Puig moves from Cincinnati to Cleveland. That's a crossover. So let's start with Greinke. How much does moving to Houston help him as a fantasy asset? Well, I think it, it, it has to help him tremendously. I mean, well, first of all, you're, just, you're moving to a more competitive team from Arizona to Houston. You know, there's that immediate uh, increase as far as the, the competitive level where you, you have a legitimate shot right now at, at, you know, pitching for a World Series contender. But, I mean, I think if, if we've learned anything over the last couple of years, it's that any pitcher who goes to Houston somehow turns into 
um, this unbelievable ace. We saw Garrett Cole go from great upside in Pittsburgh to you know one of the one of the top pitchers in the uh, in the American League going over there. Wade Miley, as bad as Wade Miley is, I won a bet with Kyle Elfrink from Sirius XM the year that Wade Miley ended up getting traded to Baltimore. This is years and years ago, and I said to him. I said to Kyle, you know, who was trying to tout Wade Miley in Baltimore, and I was like, listen, I was like, I'll tell you what, man, I guarantee you that his ERA uh, is no better than Ubaldo Jimenez's first half ERA uh, that year in Baltimore. I think Ubaldo had like a six-something ERA in the first half for the, uh, for the Orioles, and then Wade Miley came in. <laughs> he was just absolutely atrocious. But now you put Wade Miley in, in Houston, and suddenly this guy uh, turns into a, a, a high-end lefty arm. I mean, <laughs> his last three starts, the guy's got like a two ERA and three wins. I'm like, Ugh, how is this possible? So Granky now coming to Houston, I mean, let the spin rate articles uh, start up here because you know that everybody's going to start jumping on that aspect. Yeah, and uh, Houston has that reputation of being really good at developing the ki- at, at targeting the kind of pitchers they like, and then developing them. And uh, I don't think they have to worry that much about uh, uh, Granky as far as the raw talent. And uh, maybe they can help him out a bit. I think the bigger advantage for for him is going to be a much better bullpen, so he's not as likely to lose games that he leaves winning. Uh, Arizona is still kind of scrambling around with Archie Bradley and trying to figure out what they're going to do with their bullpen. And of course, Houston's just going to win more games. And I did a research study in at Baseball HQ a few years ago that uh, to prove to my satisfaction that a, a guy who's pitching on a good team gets more wins, you know, and you'd think, well, duh, but it's true. And, and I think that uh, Zach Greinke could be a huge difference maker down the stretch here in American League only leagues. Yeah, oh, I think he's going to be a, a, a huge, huge bonus. And if anybody who had, has fab to, to spend in that second half, that's going to be a major boost, a major boost. But, I mean, listen, you're right. I mean, guys who go to better teams, you know, you look at, at what happened during this trade deadline, how many, how many teams really improved their bullpen? I mean, you know, I mean, a bunch. But, I mean, that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, let me get my starters, you know, five innings, six if they can, and then just turn it over to my bullpen, and really that's how, you know, we're, we're building things right now. So, you know, going to a team that has a strong pen uh, and has guys like Ryan Presley and Will Harris and Osuna is the closer over there, it's a lot more secure uh, when you, you know, to, to just take a pitcher out after, you know, five and two-thirds or six innings and just say, okay, you did a great job, let's turn it over to the pen, let's win this game. The guy that interests me more going into Houston is Aaron Sanchez from Toronto because I can't help but thinking that Toronto was mismanaging Aaron Sanchez based on his skills and based on his pitches. And uh, I don't know if you've read The MVP Machine, the book by Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sawchick, but they talk a lot about how Houston picks these pitchers out deliberately. They identify the guys they want to acquire because of spin rates and and, uh, pitch movement and all these kind of things. And then they get them into Houston, and one of the first things they say is, stop throwing this pitch. 
it's a bad pitch and you're not getting anybody to swing and miss at it. And I know from having looked at this that Aaron Sanchez has an outstanding curveball and a not so outstanding fastball. And I, and yet the Jays were having him throw the fastball 40% of the time and the curve 20 or 22 or whatever it was, roughly the same as uh, his changeup. I bet you Houston's going to have Aaron Sanchez throwing 40% or 50% curveballs. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Aaron Sanchez flowers or blooms as a result. Yeah, the only concern that I have with Sanchez about throwing that curve really is just is about the grip uh, and his blister issues. Now, you know, obviously, I mean, this isn't like Rich Hill that we're dealing with here, but we have seen that with with Sanchez and and you know his grip of the uh, of the curve and where is you know where where the seams touch his finger, and that's been the uh, the, the issue for him. I mean, listen, if if Houston can definitely you know work on that a little bit better. Um, and yeah, if he's throwing that curveball more than he is the fastball, I think it'll definitely work. I'm not really sure where 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 Sanchez fits in. Listen, I've I've, I've been a, a big fan of him, uh, you know, and and I think that he's got fantastic talent. A- any pitcher in Toronto, to me, um, it's 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 almost a nightmare situation there. You're talking about a a, a, pa- a ballpark that plays like Coors Field up in Canada. Um, the Rogers Center is very unforgiving. Not to mention the fact. That when you're pitching on the road in this imbalanced schedule, where are you going? You're going to Yankee Stadium. You're going to Camden Yards. You're going to Fenway Park. So, uh, you know, I think pulling him out of that situation uh, is going to be a huge boost for him. Where he slots into this rotation, though, um, to me is, uh, you know, I mean, where are they, uh, you know, they going to use him as a fifth starter here? Are they going to use him as, as, as long relief maybe because – when you've got Verlander, Cole, and Granky right now as your top three, um, Miley, I guess, would be your, your, your fourth. You know, you throw him in there as your lefty. Um, does Sanchez become the fifth, or does Sanchez have more value for you to, you know, to throw like the sixth and the seventh inning when you have like a guy like Miley, you know, on the, uh, on the, on the bump? Yeah, I would guess that Aaron Sanchez slots in to start with at least as the fifth starter and maybe in weeks where there's no need of him, he'll probably go into some kind of swing role and get some innings that way. Uh, uh, you mentioned Toronto pitchers, and I heard you say on your SiriusXM Fantasy Alarm show that from a fantasy perspective, you like the fact that Marcus Stroman leaves Toronto to go to the Mets. What was your reasoning? Well, again, it's, you know, Stroman... Stroman with the with the ground ball rate, like the, the one move that that happens uh, where it's a little bit of a downturn going to the the Mets and City Field is the you know is the possibility of the defense. But I'm looking at at Stroman here in the sense that you know the, the strikeouts I think are going to increase going to the National League. It's a much much better ballpark. Um, you know, it's it's one of those situations where Stroman's really just going to be able to sit and throw strikes. You know, you always wonder about the mentality of a, of a pitcher who throws in a place like the Rogers Center, who throws in a place like Coors Field, who throws in a place like Great American Ballpark, um, where all of a sudden, you know, these guys, instead of just pounding the strike zone like they should be doing, they try to nibble the corners too much because they're so deathly afraid of leaving a mistake up in the zone and just watching it clear the fences. And I think that, you know, again, Stroman coming out of the AL East, um, and heading over to the National League East in a better ballpark for him, uh, you know, is going to allow him to just really just pound the strike zone and have less concern that he's going to make a mistake and 
you know, J.D. Martinez is going to park a three-run shot into the uh, into the upper deck in, in Toronto. So, yeah, I like it. I, I think, you know, the defense might, uh, you know, hurt him a little bit uh, down the stretch. But overall, I think he's just going to be a more confident pitcher. I think he's going to be able to, you know, see that increase in strikeouts. The ground ball rate will stay up nicely. Um, and I just I think it's just a positive move for him. Anytime you get out of a park like like the Rogers Center, I think it's a it's a positive move. Well, speaking of guys going to pretty tough pitching situations, Trevor Bauer goes from Cleveland to Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati's a real homerific place, as we all know. It's a small confined space, so there's less uh, foul outs and and that kind of thing. What was your reaction from a fantasy perspective to Trevor Bauer going into the uh, firing zone there? Um, I think my uh, my professional analysis was, oh, really? <laughs> I think that's kind of what it came down to there. Um, you know, I think Bauer is a guy who, yeah, he's a very cerebral guy. He really is. And, he's, and, he, and he kind of, you know, marches to the beat of a different drummer uh, as well. I, I, I like Bauer as a, as a pitcher. I think that he's going to have issues. Um, in Cincinnati, we've seen him have command issues. We see that, you know, you know, his home run rate, you know, home runs allowed rate, uh, you know, kind of, kind of stays up in that like 1.2, 1.3 range. And that's, you know, that's in the American league and it's in Cleveland. Now he's got to go down and he's got to pitch in Cincinnati, uh, much, much more hitter friendly there. Um, you've got to pitch a different type of game. I mean, we saw him when he was, you know, back in the early days trying to start off in uh, in Arizona um, and learning how to pitch to big league hitters there. Now he's got, I mean, listen, I know that there's a, enough crossover with interleague that, you know, you see the National League players a, a lot more, but there's still, it's still a different game, it's still different matchups. It's still different, uh, you know, when to drop in your breaking stuff, when to throw a fastball. And, and it definitely changes up like that. So when you look at a guy like Bauer, who he's had some command issues, he's got some home run issues there. I mean, to me, it's just it's it's dangerous over there. Will he see an uptick in strikeouts? Probably. You can't not do it when you go from you know facing a DH to facing a pitcher or you know a potentially cold pinch hitter at that point. So will strikeouts increase? Sure, probably. But I don't necessarily know if he's going to garner, you know, more wins, fewer wins. Uh, and I certainly worry about the condition of his, uh, of his whip and his ERA moving forward. And outside of fantasy, I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan. And uh, when I look at their uh, potential starting rotation, uh, despite the ballpark, I'm, I'm, uh, for the first time in a long time, I'm feeling pretty confident about Cincinnati. Maybe not for this year. It's a little late. But uh, I like their chances as we start next year. Uh, one other starter I'd like to ask you about, and this is one of those situations where Oakland kind of, as they do, kind of looking around the bottom of the barrel and finding uh, first Homer Bailey from Kansas City, and now they've picked up Tanner Roark, uh, another starter who is, he's a serviceable, meh sort of uh, major league starter. How do you like his chances to make any kind of fantasy splash now that he's in Oakland? I don't really necessarily think he's going to make any kind of a splash. I think he's going to be... Uh, yeah, I, I think there's there's better better chances for him, uh, you know, pitching in in Oakland than there really is going to be pitching in in Cincinnati. 
Uh, the, you know, the ballpark's definitely more favorable there. Um, he's going into a, into a situation where, you know, a lot of the West uh, teams in the American League are, are kind of giving up on the year. Texas isn't, isn't going to be contending. Seattle's already been selling off, you know, all of their parts there. Sure, you got Houston that you're going to have to deal with, but I think that there's a, a you know, I haven't looked at the, the detailed schedule of the, uh, the out-of-division games there for, uh, for Oakland, but, you know, I, I think that it's a, it's a decent move for him. I don't think you're going to see any kind of a major uptick. He's still going to have some issues that we just kind of see with Tanner Roark, where you get that kind of uh, inconsistency and in those command issues that he has shown before. So I think I, I, I'm not going to say it's a lateral move, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, man, it's great. He's out of Cincinnati, and now he's in Oakland, and he's going to be a much better pitcher. I, I think there's a lot more to it with Roark. You mentioned, and as we expected, a lot of bullpen parts moved around. Too many to talk about here, but it's certainly being widely discussed in the baseball media. But I am curious about Shane Green. He got traded to playoff aspiring Atlanta. They're a division leader, a good, solid club. I have Green on my tout team. How good is this news for me and for other Shane Green owners? Well, I, you know, listen, I think the biggest concern about Shane Green was where he was going to end up, and was he going to end up just as a middle relief guy? And, you know, if, you're, if your league didn't play with saves and holds, well, then you were going to end up getting kind of screwed out of, uh, uh, out of having a closer, and you were going to have to scramble for it. For me, you know, you look at the, the move to Atlanta for him, a team desperate for a closer. Um, you know, they just they really solidified their bullpen. You know, I mean, you've got – they did pick up Mark Melanson, but Melanson, I think, has, he settled in so much nicer – into uh, into an eighth inning role with the Giants, that I think that that Melanson kind of stays in that in that realm also. So I think I think Green now he's pitching for a more competitive team, playoff bound team. Uh, I think this is going to be a, a good solid move for him. I don't think you know I, I'm not saying that this you know it's going to turn him into this elite closer. I just think that the opportunity for him right now to succeed in the ninth inning is still there. It's just as favorable now, if not a little bit more than it was in Detroit. A 118 ERA, 087 whip, so he has been pretty elite. The question has always been, you know, was it some kind of fluke or had he changed something about his his uh, delivery or his spin or something like that? I think I think Shane Green's for real this year. I actually do. Uh, I did notice that they grabbed Mark Melanson, and I thought the same thing that you did, that it's probably for setup. But they also took a hold of Chris Martin from the uh, Texas Rangers, and I thought, this seems to me like maybe a little bit of insurance, that if all of a sudden Shane Green gets to Atlanta and there's something different about the weather, there's something different about the mound, and all of a sudden he reverts to Shane Green of previous years with a 4.5 ERA, that maybe they have options that they can quickly go to plan B, and that's the source of any worry that Shane Green owners might have. Yeah, listen, I think, you know, I mean, it, it behooves Atlanta to have that kind of insurance for them, but you know, I think it, in, in all honesty, I think that the bullpen repair um, has more to do with the fact that they are relying on guys like Mike Soroka and Max Fried uh, as, as young starters. You have to be able, you have to monitor these kids' innings. You know, you're going to the playoffs, so you know that all of a sudden these youngsters are going to see an innings increase that you don't, you don't normally want to see 
in a developing starter there. So all of a sudden now, if you can shorten up the game for the back end of your rotation, guys like Keuchel, Julio Tehran, those guys are fine. Let them go there, you know, six innings that they're going to go uh, and, and have the bullpen there. But, you know, if you want to try and monitor, you know, how many innings pitched you're getting from these youngsters who you're hoping are going to be staples of your rotation for years to come, you have to protect those arms. And I think that, you know, by adding a guy like Martin and adding a guy like Melanson and adding a guy, obviously, in Shane Green, uh, is going to help them in the end. You know, they picked up Swarzak, uh, you know, what, like a month or so ago. That was another good, solid move for them. So they've got, they've got a good bridge from, from starter to closer, um, whether they go five, you know, whether the starter goes five innings or, or not, I think they've got enough arms there to do it. Do they have protection in case Shane Green falters? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, I don't necessarily think that they want to even look at it in that fashion. Uh, Washington was really active. They grabbed three bullpen pieces to support closer Sean Doolittle. They got Daniel Hudson, an underrated reliever from Toronto. They also grabbed Hunter Strickland and Reynas Elias from Seattle. And those were the two guys kind of first in line for saves, but few there will be in Seattle. Uh, Of course, we're going to assume Doolittle continues to close in Washington. Those other guys will set him up. But my curiosity here is what's going to happen in the bullpen in Seattle? Where did the saves go there? Ooh, well, I mean, that's, uh, that's going to be an interesting spot. In Seattle, last I saw, I mean, I think, it's, <clears throat> I think they're going to end up with just sort of a committee role there. Uh, you know, Seattle, again, they've dealt off so many pieces of, of their team that, you know, how, how competitive are they even going to be uh, down the road there? I think they're going to, you know, Anthony Bass is the name that's been thrown around there. Mike McGill uh, is another name. Corey Guerin, who... Uh, who was with San Francisco for a little bit and has filled in as a closer um, at times. So I think that those three guys are going to kind of handle that, that workload uh, over there. You know, it's funny, you know, Strickland and, and Elias going from Seattle to Washington, I think that's more uh, about concerns over Sean Doolittle and what we've seen of, from him over the years as insurance more than I think the uh, the Braves adding Chris Martin and and Mark Melanson as insurance for Shane Green because we've seen Sean Doolittle with the injuries uh, and just kind of faltering there. You get a guy like Strickland, you get a guy like uh, Elias. Both of them have closing experience there. I think those guys are, are better insurance policies, especially if Washington's going to want to try and play any kind of matchups there, any kind of lefty righty matchups, and maybe free up Doolittle for you know some other work. Just for the record, Baseball HQ projection is Anthony Baskets about half the saves, and then the rest go, uh, you mentioned Corey Guerin, Sam Tuya, Valala, uh, Brandon Brennan actually was a guy I was looking at even before this all happened, Matt McGill you mentioned as well. Uh, I thought this was an interesting move that Minnesota picked up Sam Dyson. What do you think his role is going to be there, and uh, how much value can he add to a fantasy team? Yeah, I mean, to, for a fantasy team, if you're playing with, with holds, then, then maybe. I've never been a big Sam Dyson fan. I don't know, maybe, uh, yeah, for me, maybe it was just watching him try and fill in as a closer in Texas. Uh, and maybe I'm just scarred from that to pull back from another section of our conversation here. So, I don't know, I'm not a huge Sam Dyson fan. Uh, you know, the, the, the Twins, if they're concerned as far as, you know, closing aspects go, 
They did grab Sergio Romo there. They still have a guy like Trevor May who couldn't, you know, possibly uh, slot in, especially if they if they want to get more out of Taylor Rogers. That's going to be an interesting situation, really, from a fantasy standpoint, because while Rogers is is definitely you know locked, in, you know he's he's going to be closing games for them. He's one of two lefties in that bullpen, and you know if if a guy like Lewis Thorpe is not somebody who you can trust in a high leverage situation, and you need a lefty in the eighth inning, you know I mean where are you going to go? You got to go to Taylor Rogers there, which I think puts a little bit more onto Sergio Romo than it does really Sam Dyson. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, the left-handed. In, uh, high leverage situation thing is I I believe is something that Taylor Rogers owners need to keep an eye on because they're they have a smart team their organization has got real smart real fast their manager Rocco Baldelli has shown that he's not married to the old models of how to do things uh, I believe that that's a really excellent piece of analysis about Rogers and it could cost him some saves. Uh, one last thing, uh, Toronto traded pretty much their entire bullpen except Ken Giles, and they probably would have traded him except he came down with some elbow soreness. Uh, where do you think the smart money goes, if there is any smart money going, for whatever few saves Toronto might be able to pile up over the second half? Ooh, that's, a, that's a pretty disgusting-looking group, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of feel like maybe Derek Law is the guy who probably gets one of the first looks as, as far as a closer goes. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, really gross there. I think, you know, Schaefer has, has the, the ability of, of getting in some work. I know they've got um, uh, Tim Meza, the, uh, the, the Southpaw. And I think he's, he's going to be in the mix. Again, you know, you look at a situation like this, and I look at it just like I look at Seattle. There's nobody who's really jumping off the page uh, to be able to, to do anything for you. So you kind of look at it and say, it's probably going to end up being a, you know, a, a, a committee sort of thing. Um, if, I'm only, if my league only uses saves, I'm probably not going to bother diving into this bullpen at all. But if it saves plus holds, well, then, yeah, then I'll give guys like Law and Schaefer a look. Yeah, I think Schaefer might be the uh, sleeper in this role because he's not well-known and pretty new to the team. Uh, let's move on to some hitters. We, you did mention that not a lot of them moved, and uh, the guy that jumps out at me is Yaziel Puig, comes over to Cleveland in that three-way deal with Bauer. And not that either of us has enough fab to compete for Yaziel Puig and Tout, but is he the kind of hitter that other owners who have fab money should be all in on their bids? Um, <laughs> it's really kind of funny. I had a lot of high hopes for Puig uh, this year in, in Cincinnati. I thought it was a, a really nice spot for him. I thought the pressure would be off of him. And he's having, you know, he's having a rock-solid season. You know, he's like, what, 22 homers, like 14, 15 stolen bases right now. Um, so he's, he's definitely going to probably jump over his his career highs, but you know, there's just something about Puig who just, uh, it always just comes up short for me. It really does. Maybe it's because I was just buying into the hype too much when he was coming into the league. But, you know, I, I kind of feel like it's, uh, you know, like a, like a Yoenna Cespedes kind of situation where, yeah, you know, you're, it, it, it looks really great. You know, like when, 
I think the best way that it, you know I could explain it actually was a an analogy my wife came up with when I was like really struggling for an analogy in a conversation. She was like, you know, he's like when you go to a store and you try on a dress and you look at yourself in the store and in their light and in their mirrors and everything looks great. And then you come home and you put the dress on at home and you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, ugh, this is not really what I signed up for. And I kind of feel like Yasiel Puig is that type of a guy where looks great in the store and then you bring home and you're like, yeah, there's just a certain amount of disappointment. Will he be an asset? Absolutely. If you need a boost in the counting stats, you, you got to do it. You got to make it happen. But I mean, to sit there and think, well, you know what? He's going to go to Cleveland now, um, and he's going to what? I mean, what's he going to do? Is he, do you think he's going to pop fifteen to twenty home runs right now? Is he going to swipe, you know, twelve to fifteen bags right now? I don't think that that's really a realistic way to look at it. I don't either. And the first thing that I note when I and whenever anybody crosses leagues in this way or even in any kind of trade situation, of course we all do the same is check the power uh, ratings for the parks. And Cleveland, according to Baseball HQ's three-year park ratings, is about a minus 6% for right-handed power, so it's a little bit under league normal. Cincinnati was plus 17. So if you look at it, taking the two together, that's a 23% swing in the uh, right-handed power, which I think might be a problem in suppressing Puig's home run totals. However, Cleveland runs a lot, so maybe he'll get make up for it with a few more bags. Um, well, you know, it's like my great-granddaddy always used to say, you can wish in one hand and poop in the other and see which one fills up first. <laughs> maybe maybe I've just got deep, deep emotional scars on Tweeg also. I just, I'm, not gonna, I'm just not going to jump behind it so much and say that he's going to be the difference maker that, you know, you need to win a championship. How about Fran Reyes also headed to Cleveland? Well, see that, you know, that's not bad. I mean, listen, if, if Fran Reyes is just, you know, I mean, if he slots in as a regular DH in the American League, which is really where he should be anyway, you know, I mean, uh, God bless him for, for trying to play the outfield. And, and God bless them in, in San Diego for, you know, running him out there in such a spacious outfield as well. I think I think this is a nice move for him. I think he can just focus on the hitting. That's really what it comes down to for him. Um, you know, he might have a, uh, an, you know, a little bit of a transition period moving from, you know, the one league to the other. But I kind of feel like this is a really nice spot for him where he can just settle in. He doesn't have to worry about playing defense. And he can just, you know, line up that power stroke. I think that that's a, a, a good move for him. That's... Like that, that would be a place where I would put my fab money. Uh, probably, you know, even even though it probably won't be as expensive as Puig will be because of the stolen base aspect. But I think if you're looking for the power numbers, if you're looking for home runs and RBI, I think that that Fran Mil Reyes is a better option for you than than Puig is. How did you react uh, fantasy wise to the uh, Rays landing Jesus Aguilar from the uh, Milwaukee Brewers? I was outraged. I was outraged. No, not really. It didn't. Yeah, it didn't do much for me there. Um, you know, Aguiar was never a guy who I was, you know, completely enamored with. I, you know, what he did last year was absolutely fantastic, and it was, 
it was nice to see, but I just, you know, I, as far as like a hit tool goes, I think that there is definitely, you know, there are some holes in his swing that, you know, we saw plenty exposed this year. Um, and now he goes from, from a, a nice, <clears throat> nice potent ball, you know, uh, robust lineup there from Milwaukee. Uh, and now he goes over to Tampa where there's nobody in the stands. It's a spacious ballpark. The team is competitive, but yet nobody really believes in them. Uh, and I just like to me, it's a you know, it's a non-entity there. I don't know how many at bats he's going to get regularly. Are they going to keep him at first base the entire time? Are they going to DH him? So I'm not, you know, I didn't really, didn't really have that. That didn't move the needle as much for me as uh, as the the hitters going to Cleveland did. The thing that jumped out at me, Howard, was I thought maybe what they were trying to do is find a platoon match for uh, G-Man Choi, who has a lot of trouble with left-handers. But uh, historically, Aguiar's been much better at hitting left-handers than he has been this year. But this year, it's OPS is 616 against lefties, 740 against righties. He's bet, it's a reverse platoon split. And I wonder at the end of the day whether what we're going to get is G-Man Choi getting you know 40% of the plate appearances and Aguiar getting 40% of the plate appearances, and for mixed purposes, neither of them being really that much use. It's very possible. It's very possible. I mean, yeah. It does, it, again, it didn't move the needle for me at all in the, in the sense that I was like, oh, well, this is going to turn his season around for him. I can't buy that. And finally, Nick Castellanos goes to the Cubs from Detroit. Uh, how much does that help his fantasy value? Um, is it just me or, or have, have you had like recent nightmares and, and in your nightmare, you just see Nick Castellanos all tangled up in the Ivy. Like <laughs> defensively, he's really got some holes in his game. And, and that's, you know, going to, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's a less spacious outfield that he's going to have to patrol at Wrigley than he is in, uh, in, in Detroit. But listen, I think it's, I think it's a good move for him. It's a positive ballpark shift for him. If you're just looking at it from a number standpoint, um, it's a more competitive lineup. It's a more, uh, you know, it's, it's going to get him more into the game than, say, playing in, you know, the, the waiting game in Detroit. And when am I going to get traded out of here? And, oh, let me make sure I say goodbye to Miguel Cabrera because he's probably going to retire. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a good move for him to go to Chicago. Um, I, you know, I can't really say that I'm going to see like any kind of a massive power uptick. There might be a little bit of a power uptick, but he's also got some holes in his swings that have been uh, exposed this year as well. So I think it's a good move for him. Um, it's not the, the be-all, end-all, though, for me. Another guy with a pretty significant platoon split as well. He's uh, crushing left-handers this year uh, again and uh, struggling against righties, which is not where you want a guy to be if you want him on your fantasy team. Uh, <laughs> a couple of prospects moved here and there, mostly lesser guys, but there was a pretty big package uh, from Houston. Uh, right-handers J.B. Bukoskis, Corbin Martin. Uh, I think he's recovering from Tommy John. First baseman Seth Beer, who's an interesting guy, and a lesser prospect, a utility guy named Josh Rojas. I think you'd agree that all of these guys have moved up because it's an easier pathway to the major leagues in Arizona than it would have been in Houston. But has any of them really catch your eye? Um, you know, I mean, Beer is an interesting guy there, uh, I think, because I do think that, that 
you know, first base is definitely a, a much easier path um, for somebody like him to, to advance over there. Obviously, you know, no Goldie there anymore. Really put a, a major hole there, but they don't, you know, they, they really haven't had anybody, you know, Christian Walker, maybe Jake Lamb plays a little first base. So it's, it's I, I think that Beer for the long term is uh, is a nice option there. I also like Corbin Martin. I really do. I think he's got a good strikeout rate. He's got uh, a decent command over his pitches. He just needs to kind of, you know, hone his skills a little bit more. And, you know, I think maybe, you know, going out to Arizona, I think that might be a, a nice little move for him. I think that that's, you know, he's probably the one who I would, you know, look at the most, especially if he could lock down like a third or fourth starter's role uh, next season. I think, you know, any, any pitcher in the NL West, um, especially now that the Humidor is in play in Arizona, I think any NL West pitcher uh, deserves a look for, uh, you know, obviously ballpark factors and strikeouts. Uh, Martin probably a ways off. He had uh, Tommy John just earlier this month, so won't be seeing him for a while. Uh, finally, Howard, I was just curious. We heard a lot of names in the run-up to the trade deadline. We always do. Who was the biggest surprise to you among all the major leaguers who were rumored to be on the block but who didn't get traded? Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm so glad that you didn't ask me about the Zach Gallen trade because I had a, a classic flub on the air yesterday trying to uh, – uh, say the name of the guy he was traded for. So thank you for not doing that to me, Patrick. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. <laughs> what a, I don't know. Did you hear it yesterday? Did you hear me on the air? Uh, I heard about it, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. So Jazz Chisholm. Yeah. It's... <laughs> Try and say that one quickly. Um, I, listen, I, I'm, I'm still in just dead on shock that the Giants did not move Madison Bumgarner. I mean, even if you want to say that, you know, you're going to, I mean, <laughs> if they were going to invest the money in Madison Bumgarner, because they have, they have, they're going to have plenty of money to sign him next year. But you would think that, you know, rather than let him walk into this year as a free agent, that, you know, that you would have made him the offer. Uh, already, I don't know. What, do they think maybe that they were like, you know, waiting out to see what you know, what possible injuries and possible ramifications from you know the shoulder from last year? I don't really know. But here's a guy right now who's having a great season. The Giants just don't have the horses to to win. They don't. I mean, <laughs> they just uh, you, you can't sit there and tell me that this is a this is a team that's running Alex Dickerson out there in the outfield on a regular basis. Or, or Mike Yastrzemski, that, that this is a team that's going to win. Madison Bumgarner should have landed on a different team. Even if you want to say that you're going to try and compete for this year, then you trade him somewhere to, to make your rotation deeper. But to risk losing him for nothing, which is right where we're looking at right now for them. I, I, I was really surprised. Like Farhan Zaidi is a guy who... I have the utmost respect for. I think he's a, he's a phenomenal general manager. I think he's a, he's a fantastic evaluator of, of talent. I think he just, I, I don't know, I, maybe it's his first year here in, uh, in San Francisco, so he wants to maybe appease the fan base a little bit by not dumping their, their best guy, and then maybe you know, it turns into you know, the negotiations next year uh, where it's instead of you know, him just trading off Matt Bumwell, 
yeah, we lost Matt Bum in free agency, and let's make him the bad guy because we made a competitive offer for him. I don't know if that's the game that he's playing, but I, yeah, that to me, I just I didn't see that happening at all. Not to mention, um, I just I, I'm I'm in even more shocked that the Yankees and the Dodgers didn't really do anything to improve their teams. I mean, these are both two teams who have holes on their on their roster that they really needed to fill. So I'm surprised they didn't do anything. I'm surprised that, that Matt Bum is still a giant. I think in the Yankees' case, anyways, I was following that pretty closely because of playing in an American League-only format. What I got from the reading and the rumor-mongering that surrounds all of this sort of stuff is that the Yankees were just not going to let go of Glaber Torres or Davey Garcia. Which, I mean, listen, <laughs> there's, I, I, I can't... Um, I'll never criticize Brian Cashman as a GM. He's done amazing things with the Yankees over the years, um, and I just have to kind of put my trust and faith into him. So if that's, you know, if that was his stance, well, then okay, so be it. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and rip him for for not making the moves. Was I surprised? Yes. Do I understand what he's trying to do? Sure. So as a as a as a fan of the team itself, I mean, is it disappointing? Maybe a little bit, but. You know, I always know that he's got my best interest at heart. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Howard Bender from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and Fantasy Alarm. And, Howard, I always like to ask our experts to talk about a few players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for these last two months. Let's start in the American League. Who's a boon hitter for the rest of the year? To take a page out of uh, Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf's uh, playbook for this year, how do you not look to Bo Bichette and just say, you know, listen, this this Toronto team, you know, are they going to be competitive? Well, you know, probably not, and they've just decimated their whole bullpen. Offensively, though, I mean, how do you not love what they're going to try and put together here for at least just this second, run, you know, second last few months of the season? Let the kids play. Um, you know, I think that if you if somebody stashed Bichette, then you got to get him into your lineup on a regular basis and just let him play. I think this kid is just a he's just a really good ball player. I think there's going to be no pressure on him whatsoever here for the uh, the last couple of months of the season, uh, and I think that he's definitely going to help you out. So if you uh, you know if you're playing like a shallow league and you're sitting there struggling in the uh, in the infield, I think Bichette's a guy you uh, you're going to want to try and pick up. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? Man, if you can't get yourself some some Paul Goldschmidt right now, I mean that is just I mean your your window to buy low obviously long gone there. But you know if you've got a an owner who's just you know middling or you know towards the bottom of the standings and is sitting there with Paul Goldschmidt on your team, you you got to try on their team. You got to try and make a, a move for him. Um, you know, did the patients run out early? Yes, but I mean, I think that this is a this is a guy who, if you can try and pull from somebody who really isn't competing in your league, I think that you can get him for a fair price, and and I think he's going to be a huge help. To the mound and back to the American League. Who's a American League pitcher who could be a boon for his owners? You know, under the radar, I think Zach Plesac is a guy who I think people should definitely take a look at. I mean, this kid has great stuff. Uh, again, we're looking at a, a, a Cleveland team that's 
surging late. You know, you're getting the, the play out of Jose Ramirez that you that you thought about. They're obviously boosting their offense with Puig and Fran Mo Reyes. I think that Plesak uh, is a guy who's going to be a sneaky addition for uh, for some wins and some low ratios. And in the National League, a Boone pitcher? I'm going to go with Dallas Keuchel. It might be a, might sound a little a little chalky there, but I mean, again, with the Braves improving their bullpen the way they did, I think that Keuchel is really working himself into a nice rhythm, five six innings at most for him, and I think that uh, that he's going to be able to uh, help everybody out a lot. The part about the bullpen is really well said because, of course, they were really struggling with Luke Jackson and some of those other guys blowing leads all over the place and giving everybody heart attacks at the same time. Uh, Howard Bender's Boons, Bo Bichette of Toronto, Paul Goldschmidt of St. Louis, Zach Plesak of Cleveland, Dallas Keuchel of Atlanta. Let's move over to the Baines now, Howard. These are guys about whom you think our listeners should be cautious for the stretch. Uh, Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a Bane? Stop it with the Domingo Santana thoughts. Just stop it right there. I know, I know we sat there, we thought that Domingo Santana was going to be fantastic and got off to a hell of a start along with the rest of the Mariners there. But, you know, there's a reason that Seattle actually had trouble moving him. And they actually inquired about moving him to a number of different places. Um, I think that the hit tool is lacking over there. And I think that. You know, somebody's going to sell you on name and, and power potential, but it's just not there. So, AL hitter, Domingo Santana. What a decline. That's all I can say is uh, what a decline. He, he bounced back a little bit in June, and that kind of raised everybody's hopes again. But, you know, he's not a bad hitter. I just think he's an ordinary hitter, and people try to sell him as more than that. I think you're right about that. Who's a National League hitter who could be a Bane? You know, I, I think that, that, that we, we drank the Kool-Aid on Ozzy Albies. I think he had a, a fantastic year last year. Um, but we saw the second half swoon for him. And then, you know, this year you just you never really got as, as much out of Ozzy Albies as you had hoped. Um, and, you know, people sitting here, he hits lower in the lineup now. It's, that's never good. Um, and I think that people are still trying to sell him as a good stolen base guy. The problem is, is that how much opportunity do you have to steal bases when you're hitting out of the seven hole, uh, you know, for the most part of your uh, of your season there. So I think if you're looking for middle infield help, I think you're you're better off trying to find uh, some power from you know some lesser known guys as opposed to buying into a guy like Ozzy Albies, who's just it's just not going to deliver the goods this year. Maybe next year it's a different story, but for this year, I'm tapping out. Yeah, I think Ozzy Albies is a good call in this sense. I don't think he's a bad player, but I think if, especially if you're looking at him as a trade acquisition, the price that's going to be asked is too high based on reputation, and the reputation, as you said, doesn't match the actual output. Uh, over to the mound again, who's an American League pitcher who you think could be a bane for his owners? Um, you know, I feel like James Paxton is going to be a bane for, for fantasy owners this year. Listen, I, I, I think that Paxton has great potential, He's just not pitching well in New York. I think that we're still kind of clinging on to, you know, his reputation and all the hype that we saw about him in Seattle. And I think that that's, uh, that's just the, they're just some guys who just don't pitch well in New York, who don't handle the pressure well in New York, who don't handle the ballpark that well. Um, and I worry that, that just, this is not the year that, that Paxton's going to put it together for you.
I was going to ask you, because you're a New York guy, and, and we hear expressed the opinion that things like doesn't pitch well in this situation, doesn't pitch well in this city, whatever. I mean, it can be quantified on a city-by-city park basis, but the pressure of the situation is oftentimes poo-pooed by guys who rely mostly on numbers. But it is a real thing, don't you think? Oh, I definitely think it's a real thing. I mean, listen, I've, I've seen it for years and years. I've seen pitchers come in and, and take New York by storm. I've seen pitchers come in uh, and just completely flop. I mean, it's just, it's it's a different animal. It really is. Um, you know, you're putting on the, the, the pinstripes. It is the most storied franchise in all of baseball and probably all of sports, to be perfectly honest. Um, so to sit there and say that, you know, now all of a sudden I'm in Yankee Stadium wearing the pinstripes, standing on the mound, um, I mean, I definitely think that that exerts a, a, a tremendous amount of pressure on somebody that, you know, listen, yes, you've been dealing with, with high-leverage pressure situations your entire life, but you're standing on the mound at Yankee Stadium right now, and now all of a sudden you're, you're living the dream that the six-year-old version of you has always wanted to be. So if you don't, you're telling me that you don't have extra pressure or added adrenaline on that, uh, well, then you're lying to me. And, of course, nowhere else in probably all of baseball is there a situation where if you have a bad game, you can almost count on your face being splashed on the rear page of, you know, one of the tabloids and, and something like, you know, big game shames or something like that for a 700-point headline. And, and that's got a way on you, too, especially if you're not used to that kind of media glare. As somebody who writes for the New York Post weekly, yes, it's, it's, uh, it can be a very unforgiving spot media-wise. And finally, Howard, uh, how about a National League pitcher who could be a bane? You know, I mean, I really I thought about this one here, and I was like, nah, I mean, the hamstring injury is going to kind of take him up. But I think I just need to plant my flag uh, in the whole, stop it with the Herman Marquez talk, people. Just enough. Don't if he comes back from this hamstring injury and he's going to be okay. Don't bother with him. I don't want to hear about the strikeouts. Don't tell me that he figured out cores because nobody's figured out cores. Um, and what really, what, what you know, what, what sticks in my craw the most as a fantasy analyst is the people's refusal, outright refusal to admit that they were wrong about this guy. Like, I hear people, I hear analysts in the business talking about, um, you know, trying to cherry-pick stats here and there about Herman Marquez uh, when, when really you should just, just admit to being wrong. You thought that he figured out course. You thought he was going to have a great season this year. It didn't happen. Accept that fact and move on. Like, I can't stand analysts who sit there and try and, like, cherry-pick these stats to try and prove a point that they were making back in February when they're so clear-cut wrong. So if you're listening to anybody who's telling you that there's still hope and there's still a chance for Herman Marquez, don't believe it. Yeah, and when you read that he's had uh, full body cramping was the report on his uh, being removed from a game earlier this week. Full body cramping doesn't sound like a good thing for a pitcher. I'm just going to go there. Uh, Howard Bender's Baines, uh, Domingo Santana of Seattle, Ozzy Albies of Atlanta, James Paxton of the Yankees, and Herman Marquez of Colorado. Uh, Howard, tell our listeners where they can read or listen to Howard Bender. I am all over the pages at fantasyalarm.com. Just check me out over there. 
Um, I write a weekly column, fantasy baseball, and a weekly fantasy football column for the New York Post. You can catch that, both those over the weekend, Saturdays and Sundays, in print and online. <clears throat> and then you can hear me on the radio, Fantasy Alarm Show, Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, uh, Sirius 210, XM 87, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, me and Jim Bowden. And when we're really lucky, you can hear Howard Bender here at Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a delight, Howard. I knew it would be. I do appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me, man. Howard Bender hosts the Fantasy Alarm program on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio every weekday from 4 to 6 Eastern and writes for FantasyAlarm.com. When we come back, it's our weekly Talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. They're standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. How'd you like the deadline? Man, I, we were just joking off air. I, uh, I'm still dreaming in Excel and probably will be doing so for another another couple of days, just part and parcel to being a, a spreadsheet guy, and uh, there's a lot of spreadsheet work, but... It's good, you know. I mean, there were enough trades at the end. We'll talk about a couple of them that um, made the, you know, made the worth worth the wait. But the minutia trades in the middle aren't so important for fantasy wise, but they're important enough for those that track data. That uh, I've been busy the past couple of days. And depending on league formats and stuff, some of those minor trades actually could have impact. I'm thinking uh, I play in the Tout American League League, a, a single-format league, and you're the commissioner of it. And I bet some of the lesser lights who came over are going to be figures of interest in that league, partially because we know that the guys with the big fab are going to get the Grankies and the Yaziel Puigs, but we all want to mm-hmm. try to get something, and it may be, you know, it's going to obviously be down the scale quite a bit. Not just that, but there's some backfilling players like on Detroit bringing up outfielders, et cetera, that may not have even been in the trade deadline but have their roles changed because of it. Cincinnati and Milwaukee are calling up some minor leaguers too. Yes, we did talk about uh, some of the possibilities in the Cincinnati outfield, for instance, are going to probably rely on young players, and that changes the value of the young players or their perceived value. A lot of, lot of moving parts. Anyhow, this week I thought right. you wrote one of the most interesting articles I've read in quite a long time. You tied it into the trade deadline, but I think it has almost universal applicability, uh, especially when players move in, in between the seasons as well. And that is the whole idea of park factors. And I think park factors are one of the things that a lot of people kind of misunderstand. And you mentioned when we were talking before the uh, interview started, 
you had a comment on this uh, on this very article in which a guy said, "I always thought it was small park bad for uh, bad for pitchers, and it's not always the same." And there are a lot of other things that you pointed out in this. And the first one I think is really important for people to understand is. Teams play a role in the park factors, even though the design of the park factor is to try to get the team out of it. And uh, the practical example you offered, which I thought was perfect, was Yankee Stadium. The quality of the pitching and or hitting is not supposed to affect the park factor. Um, but, you know, the, the bias is supposed to be fleshed out because you're comparing home versus road numbers, etc. And by and large, it does a pretty good job of it. But there are some examples where certain teams can be perfect, purposely tailored to the park or it could just be serendipitous. But Yankee Stadium is one in which there's a short right field fence. Everybody knows that. But the home run factor for right-handed batters, this, uh, the three-year average now, I think is like 122, 22% in, uh, increase over the norm. Right, right hand, Left-handed batters is, is in the 30, it's 130-something, it's, it's even more. But th- that's curious. Why, you know, left field in Yankee Stadium is really, really deep. How can how can it be such a great home run park for right-handed batters? Well, it's because the Yankees have got a few righty hitters that go the other way. And I, this wasn't just a hypothesis. I would, I checked it out with Judge and and and, and San, Gary Sanchez and and Giancarlo Stanton, and the numbers show that they have a high proportion of opposite field home runs. So those contribute. Those are the that, those are in the home denominator, and they're not going to the opposite field as much on the road. So it just it appears that Yankee Stadium is favorable for left-handed power too. But the caveat is it has to be right. I'm sorry, right-handed power too. But the caveat is those righties have to have opposite field power to take advantage of the short porch and right. If they don't have opposite field power then they're not going to realize the the park factor if you will that's you know that that's in the book that's on paper so um and i think the i don't know that the yankees catered i don't think they acquired these sluggers because they could go opposite field but it, it was more serendipitous but even so uh it just it just furthers their when healthy it furthers their ability to to take advantage of the dimensions and what I thought was, had the Yankees made a deal at the deadline, and sorry for any Yankees fans who are grumbling that they didn't, but suppose that they had acquired some kind of right-handed hitter with, with decent power, and somebody might look at the Yankees' park factor at BaseballHQ.com or elsewhere, and they'd say, oh, look at that, right-handed, right-handed home runs up 17% or whatever over the norm. I'm going to grab that guy, but it turns out that guy is a pull hitter, and hit the the... The, and he doesn't have that op- opposite field power. The Yankee Stadium so-called tendency for f- is not really a tendency, as you said, for everybody. And I think that's a super important fact to keep in mind. They actually did acquire that player, and and, and Edward Encarnacion. He doesn't pull the ball as much as the uh, the other guys that I mentioned, Sanchez, Judge, and Stanton. Yeah, those three. So to a certain extent, Encarnacion fits that fits that bill. Earlier in the show, I was talking with Nick about the players moving in and out of the Cincinnati situation, and the expectation is because Great American Ballpark is terrific for home runs, it must also be terrific for runs in general. And that affects Trevor Bauer, who's coming into that that milieu. But in fact, you point out and prove that home run venues aren't always hitters' parks. This is perhaps the biggest misconception with respect to park factors, and 
And I, I need to put the asterisk for this season because more runs are being scored via the home run this year than ever before. So I am curious to see what happens with park factors because it could, it could change things a little bit and make this less of an argument, but I still think it'll hold true. There are just some parks that favor home runs, but because of their smaller dimensions, when a, when a fly ball is hit and it's not a home run, it's usually caught. There's less ground to cover, et cetera, so there's fewer fly ball hits. These venues are actually decent run per, run venues, and then it just depends if you're if the pitcher can keep the ball in the yard at least on a relative basis, um, you know, to the league average, they can be very successful in these parts. And it's also it also matters when when you're streaming pitchers and and it doesn't have to be DFS, it can be daily leagues or even a weekly league looking for a spot starter. If my guy's pitching in Baltimore, oh no, I know the Orioles aren't very good, but it's Camden Yards. Well, Camden Yards, Camden Yards isn't as bad for runs. Matter of fact, it's played neutral. It's played a tick under neutral the past couple of years. So it's actually a good park to stream pitchers in, especially because of the, the the Orioles lineup is so poor this season. So guaranteed rate park, Minute Maid, a few others um, are and I and, and and HQ for those HQ subscribers. You folks have the, the, the park data posted as well, so you can uh, check out the numbers yourselves and, and see that some it's not always a correlation between runs and home runs. Yeah, when I looked down, you've, you had a table of all the teams' parks with a home run index and runs index or run factors, uh, park factors for those things, and almost all of them show a, a fairly interesting disparity. Uh, Seattle, uh, 103 home runs, that's a slightly above average, 90 for runs, so it's 13 points of difference. Uh, San Francisco, 68 for home runs, it's very hard to hit home runs there if you're not Barry Bonds, but 95 for runs. I mean, both under the average, but one way more than the other, and you go up and down this list, you see uh, Cincinnati, I mentioned, 120 for home runs, 104 for runs. Uh, the White Sox Park, 109 for home runs, 96 for runs. So it's the, the bottom line here that we're hoping people realize is just because a park is really good for homers doesn't mean it's good for runs, and I think that's really important. Another thing that's really important that probably nobody really thinks about is that these parks don't just affect batted balls. They also affect strikeouts and walks. And i got to ask, why is that and how does it work? These feed into the home runs and runs. If you, you, you know, why, why is it such a great home run park but not a run park? Then you look at the K and BB data and, you, oh, I, can, I see, because there's a lot of strikeouts or there's not a lot of strikeouts, whatever the case may be. But, the, uh, yeah, parks, parks matter as far as strikeouts and walks. And, you know, the bottom line for both really is the ability to make contact and the factors that uh, go into that are the batter's eye, the, the the part right, you know, I think everybody knows what the batter's eye is, is, is dead center field, sort of what the batter sees in the peripheral vision. Uh, but going back to Fenway Park, again, uh, use it as a lot of examples in previous talks just because I'm familiar with it. But during the day, the Red Sox don't have fans in the center field bleachers, the triangle, because of the, the lot of white shirts and the whatnot. So they have the tarpaulin there to get a better batter's eye. New, new parks design a batter's eye. Um, I, I wish I could remember which part. Minnesota is the park I'm thinking of. They've been, they've been, they've been uh, changing their batter's eyes over the years to try to find the right one. They now have 
a sort of a tiered layer of, of foliage, like like plants in in tiers, and it makes it look of the wall, makes it look like a wall. It's improved the batter's eye. There, the lineup has also improved, but part of Target Field is they've improved the batter's eye in center field. I think they used to have like like statues out there, and the batters found it distracting. Yeah, so not just batter's eye, but the amount of foul territory. If uh, the more foul pops that are caught, the, the you know the the at bat ends. So on, on, in, on, in theory, both strikeouts and walks should go down because um, the, the, the ball is caught and the, 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 the bat is over as opposed to a foul ball going into the stands, which is actually a strike, which is why the foul territory has more of an impact on strikeouts. Atmospheric conditions matters with uh, the cores is the extreme. Breaking balls don't break as much. If breaking balls don't break as much, you can make easier contact or make more frequent contact. So all these factors kind of tie in together. And and it's not, you know, over a one-year period, you can say it was noise. But you look at parks over a period of time, and there is a consistency with respect to their K and their BB. And I think you can get an edge. Well, I know you can get an edge if you look at individual players that move to, you know, especially pitchers in and out of strikeout parks. Um, strikeouts are not only a fantasy category, but they obviously affect uh, outcomes, runs, uh, ERA, WHIP. So it's kind of like, I especially like to look at the strikeout numbers, strikeout parks for pitchers. And if anybody's wondering, Seattle one eleven for strikeouts, Philadelphia one twelve, uh, Cincinnati one eleven, a big strikeout park. We're going to talk about uh, Trevor Bauer's supposed uh, disadvantage moving to Cincinnati might not be such a terrible disadvantage as people uh, have been led to believe. Uh, and that brings us to the fourth point that you wrote about: not all players are affected the same by all the venues equally. Right, and this kind of feeds into what we talked about uh, be- the beginning. Where, uh, we, you know, we'll, we use Yankee Stadium. I'll, I'll go back to Fenway Park. Actually, what I do is I'm going to take a Yankee, Didi Gregorius, who, well, we can use the same thing for, for Yankee Stadium because it's short right field. He, he, his home run chart, he just pulls everything. He absolutely pulls everything. So, he actually, you know what? Let's put him in, let's put him in, in, uh, in Boston because the difference is in Boston, the, 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 the home run factor for, right, for lefty hitters is like 79. It decreases by, by 21%. Put Didi Gregorius in a Red Sox uniform, and he's not going to care because he pulls everything. He's going to be hitting balls that just scrape the pesky pole, that just barely make it past the, uh, past the foul pole there. And he's not going to have his homers decrease by 21% because he's such a pull hitter in a park that favors pull hitters. It just doesn't favor the when you hit it the straightaway right. So not every, not every pitcher is going to be affected the same. And you could make the extension to pitching, where a, 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 an extreme ground ball pitcher is not going to be affected as much in a park that gives up homers, that sort of thing. So the park factors are on the aggregate. They take team numbers. Individuals don't always uh, realize the, you know, the full extent or, or, uh, of, the, of, the, of the numbers. And this is especially true when, a, when one of the parks, when it's a switch, is an extreme. Uh, it seems to be Yankee-oriented today. Uh, when, when Stanton, Giancarlo Stanton, went from Marlins Park to Yankee Stadium, the, especially the year after he hit like 50 bombs in Miami, the, the Yankees' park factor was like through the roof just because you do the translation. In that, in that scenario, it's, 
you, you couldn't have expected the full effect of the of the factor to carry through you can also the narrative that you know Stanton didn't need a big park he's gonna he's gonna hit him out of anywhere and this, this is just it's just kind of off topic a bit but the people are wondering and, and the answer is yes the statcast data there one of the projects with statcast data is improving park factors so sort of taking away taking out some of the stuff they can look at just the the sort of the this the the specs of a batted ball and take the park away and uh and and, and kind of regenerate park factors and not have to look at outcomes but they can look at stats on a on a batted ball and it's not at the top of the list of statcast but i do know that there are some people trying to use this this exit velocity and launch angle and everything else data to fine-tune if not redefine park factors and when uh, i think about that the first thing i think of is if you go to baseballsavant.com and download a big a big data set you could easily go through and filter for a, a narrow range of launch angles and and exit velocities and then compare them to the distance because I wonder, of course, one of the park factors you mentioned is environmental. And what if you're in a park that just happens to very often have the wind blowing in from left? You know, that's just the prevailing wind. And, and anybody who's been around airplanes or, or flying understands that air, certain areas have certain prevailing wind patterns and there's nothing to be done about it. Uh, I suppose you could build a big windbreak or something like that. And I think that actually has been done in a place or two. But primarily, you're going to have to just live with it. And if the, if the wind is blowing in all the time or out all the time, you would see a discrepancy between the normal distance of a, of a ball hit with a given launch angle and exit velocity in one park versus another, and you could start saying to yourself, well, now we have a real bit of proof that this park is suppressing the distance of a ball hit at a particular launch angle and speed. Yeah, and you, you could substitute what you talked about for wind and say altitude instead. You know, some parks are higher above sea level, and that affects, you know, there could be no wind in the exact same park, and the ball travel further in one compared to the other just because it's at a higher altitude. Or proximity to water, because I've read somewhere, I wish I could remember where to give proper credit, but uh, there was a pretty interesting series of articles that I read that suggested, I think it was at HQ actually, that suggested the relative humidity of the air, which is another thing that stays fairly constant over time has an effect on how well baseballs travel through that air. And, and if you're in you know, Los Angeles or Miami where it's humid and stuff like that, it's going to be a different situation than if you're in Kansas City, for instance, where the air is as dry as toast. Not only that, the, the, the effect is counterintuitive. People think that humid air slows down the balls, but actually the density of water is, is less than, the, than, the, than it's what's being replaced. So balls actually travel more in, in humid air. So all of this stuff is interesting, and uh, of course people are tuning in uh, in large part because they want to have some analysis of the trade deadline. So let's talk about a few individual players because they all get affected differently, as you said. Uh, the one I'm most interested in is Trevor Bauer. I have him on a couple of teams, and that interests me, but more because the, uh, the shift from Cleveland to Cincinnati is not nearly as damaging as people think. Yeah, well, I saw a lot of narrative that said, okay, the the park fact, the, sorry, the league switch will help, but it's such a small park, and he's getting out of the AL Central where there's so many cupcake teams to play that this could actually hurt Trevor Bauer. 
So you know, the, the the second part is more of a isn't necessarily park factors, but I'll address it in a moment. But just the park factors, and this is you know part of what we talked about earlier that some of these are non in, non intuitive. Uh, Great American Ballpark is actually better for runs than Progressive Field, and in fleshing out the the the, the relative lineups. It's it's a six percent difference when you cut it in half. It's three percent because we're only talking about home games. How much of that is actually going to be uh, you know relevant over for over small sample? But the point being, at least on paper, it's an upgrade both in terms of league and in terms of runs for Bauer because the well the ERA context right now I believe it's four point four zero in the National League and 4.60 in the American League, and obviously that has to do with facing the DH, along with quality of batters, because for a couple of years the ERAs across the leagues were the same, which kind of insinuated that the hitters in the NL were better than the, than, than the AL and or the pitching in the AL, uh, the pitching in the NL was worse. But anyway, it's back to being the NL ERAs, back to being lower than the AL again. Um, so that helps Bauer. As does, as we talked about earlier, the strikeout numbers should even get better. Now, here's again where not every pitcher, not every player realizes the full effect of the of the uh, park factor. Bowers just he's already a huge strikeout guy. Will he go up the same? You know, maybe these, maybe the again, it's in the aggregate. So maybe lesser pitchers in a strikeout ballpark get more strikeouts than than the park factor says and strikeout guys at uh, the top of the maybe get fewer and in the average it comes out to be in the middle not sure but the point being it's certainly not going to hurt him in terms of strikeouts so from a pure if you just and i'm sure hq does it very similarly i do you just you've got the different factors so when you change the team it just sort of seamlessly adjusts the projection accordingly the on-paper projection for Bauer is going to have more strikeouts in a lower ERA than you know after the trade than it did before. Zach Grinke goes to Houston from Arizona. I've heard it described as a wash park-to-park. What's your take? Yeah, um, the, here's another one of those under-the-radar changes. Minute Maid is a huge pitcher's park. It's a home run park, the uh, the Crawford Boxers, as they call them. But in general, it is a pitcher's park. And whether or not this has to do with, talked about earlier, about the catering to the park, if if, 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 the, if Verlander and Cole, et cetera, are such great pitchers, I don't know that, I don't think they're catered to the park because they, they do well on the road too. I think it's just, it's a it's a hidden, hidden pitcher's park that no one really thinks about. A, because the Houston offense is so good. And B, people just assume it's because their pitching is good. So as far as that goes, it, it it helps. Now the 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 league switch isn't going to help, obviously, because he's Granky is now having to face a DH. But I'm uh, I act, I think it's a I think it's a positive switch. I wrote a piece when Garrett Cole moved from Pittsburgh to Houston. I think I called it the the Cole hard facts or something like that. The Cole Park facts. Something you know, everybody thought that was going to be a bad move. I said no, no, no. On paper, anyway, it's going to be a good move. Now we add in the whole narrative how Houston took his spin, took his arsenal, and adjusted it, made him a better pitcher. But on paper, the park is an upgrade. So I, I think that's one of the take homes here is Minute Maid Park is a really good pitcher's park. This doesn't mean I'm putting my uh, 
uh, streaming my opposing pitchers in because the offense, you know, good offense is going to score anyway. But on paper, Minute Maid is a good pitching park. And speaking of Houston and the organizational angle is covered, but Aaron Sanchez goes from Toronto uh, to Houston. Uh, Toronto is a hitter's park, and Houston, as you said, a pitcher's park. I think this has the potential to be super interesting, what happens to Aaron Sanchez. Combine the park with the ability of the team to optimize the pitch mix. I think Toronto was doing it all wrong. I've talked about that. Uh, what, do you, what was your take on Aaron Sanchez moving into Houston? Yeah, now, you know, the caveat here being injuries, and if the injury is the, the blisters he's had, and if the, the 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 new ball seems to be preventing blisters, which not as many people are talking about, but we haven't had as many blisters injuries this year. But the main the main point being is Houston is known to, what I like to say, maximizing spin efficiency, where it's not just a matter of, finding pitches with a high spin and turning them into good pitchers. It's just, it's knowing certain pitches you want spin, certain pitches you don't, and they just have a really good feel for taking a pitcher, adjusting his arsenal to take advantage one way or the other. And Sanchez, Sanchez's, Sanchez's uh, spin on his curve, it's not just good, it's elite. Um, it's it's in the top five. Now, this doesn't this doesn't by alone make it a good pitch, there's a, the spin has to be in the right direction, the the, the the tunneling effect, everything else. But the point being, the spin is there. Now Houston needs to tweak delivery and 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 and, and uh, uh, pitch mix and, and usage, etc., to take best advantage. So I love the fact that Sanchez is in Houston as far as improving his development. He's still young enough, very easily young enough, that he could. Uh, you know, look, look what Charlie Morton in his mid-30s, they, 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 what they did with him. So Sanchez, assuming he can stay healthy, still can have a nice nice little career ahead of him. It was the perfect perfect place. Now we read that he's going to work out of the bullpen until I did my adjusted my starting pitcher grid, and he's starting Saturday, I think. So they're throwing him into the fire right away. And I believe when it comes to blisters, uh, I've read – possibly on Twitter, possibly from Trevor Bauer, that the Astros are pretty good at enhancing the grip in some uh, mysterious way that nobody likes to talk about. So there is that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. We have time for one hitter. I think the most interesting hitter to make a move is Yaziel Puig. He moves from Cincinnati, which has the reputation of a hitter's park, to Cleveland, which does not. What do you think Yaziel Puig is going to look like in Cleveland? Yeah, well, again, here's the narrative. You know, when he hits it, he can go out anywhere. Um, it should, on paper, hurt it a bit. And one thing I didn't do is I didn't break the home run park factors in, on the on the in the piece into righty and lefty. One of the things about Cleveland is the the park in general favors home runs, but it favors them much more for lefties than it does for righties. So in that regard, if you just compare the right-handed power from Cincinnati to the right-handed power. To Cleveland, on paper, it's going to hurt Puig. Now the narrative is he's when he hits it, he's, it's you know he doesn't hit cheapies, so maybe he's not hurt as much. And the other the other point about it is he should at least on paper strike out less. Although it's weird, strikeouts intuitively 
people may think Puig strikes out a, strikes out a bunch because he's got that that you know that big slugger type of guy, but his contact rate's pretty good. So, but even so, if it gets a little bit better in Cleveland, that should help. And it's not it wasn't the focus of the piece. I think you know everybody else is talking about, and rightfully so. It's just you know you don't want to repeat what everybody else is talking about. Team context, as far as 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 a more proficient lineup, especially now that. Cleveland has made a couple moves, and Oscar Mercado, who we've talked about, is 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 growing, and Jose Ramirez can hit again, etc. The team context in Cleveland should help the runs in RBI uh, pretty much, and that's also true as far as just the fact that Progressive Field is a better runs park than 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 Citizen, sorry, the Great American Ballpark. The the runs in RBI should go up. So if he if if Puig on paper loses a little power, which we're not even sure that he will, then everything else about it. The, the batting average should go up because of fewer strikeouts, et cetera. And I think overall it's a it's a plus move. And Cleveland likes to run. Uh, Yazio Puig, uh, something of a stolen yeah. base provider as well. Uh, Todd, thanks a million. I re- hi- can't recommend this story highly enough at rotowire.com. I think it's behind the paywall, so you might have to ante up, but they have some free offers you can nose yeah. around in there as well. So uh, if you can, check that out, Todd. Great work. Uh, talk to you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it, Petey. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Maggio swinging, it's a whistling line drive to left center field. It's a base hit, it's taken on the second hop by Ripple. The throw is coming in a second, the Maggio is racing for it. The Maggio makes it with a slide and it's saved for a double. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Seattle outfielder Ian Miller. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. At 27 years old, this former 14th round 2013 draft pick is probably not even near the top of most prospect lists, but maybe he should be. Through 98 games, current Tacoma Rainier center fielder Ian Miller is batting 271 with 10 home runs and, wait for it, 26 steals, leading all AAA players in stolen bases. Let's put that number in perspective. Thus far, only six Major League players have eclipsed at least 23 steals, and one of those players is Seattle's Malik Smith, currently ranked second. And yes, full disclosure, the Mariners recently acquired 29-year-old outfielder Keon Broxton on his third Major League team in 2019, and of course, another former Milwaukee Brewer, 26-year-old Domingo Santana, is currently batting 271. On a separate note, doesn't it seem a little bit strange that the Mariners appear to be transplanting the Milwaukee Brewers outfield of a few years ago? Who's next? Ryan Braun? Lorenzo Kane? Carlos Gomez? Ben Ogilvy? <laughs> of course we're kidding. But on the other hand, Seattle's Ian Miller is a name worth taking seriously. After all, Ian Miller did steal 50 bases in 2015 and 49 in 2016 followed by 43 in 2017 and 33 in 2018. And the Mariners seem to love speed, as shown by the acquisitions of players like Malik Smith and D. Gordon. 
Still at age 27, even with those numbers, Ian Miller has yet to make his Major League debut. Why? Something seems to be holding him back. That's why Ian Miller, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. A closer look shows that Ian Miller's surface stats seem respectable. He's bagged 271 at AAA this season, closely resembling his 275 career batting average at the minors. And his 10 home runs in 2019 have already exceeded his previous minor league career high of four. So what's behind the numbers? Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, we can see that Ian Miller's exceptional contact rate of 79% in 2019, which measures his ability to get wood on the ball, when compared to his 9% walk rate, showing Ian Miller's patient approach at the plate, yields an expectation benchmark of a 267 batting average at the major league level, according to the tools available at BaseballHQ.com. In other words, the numbers suggest that Ian Miller is ready, and you should be ready too to add Ian Miller, not Ben Ogilvy, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the Weekend Pitcher Matchups Report where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, including our marquee matchup, a Sunday stare-down in the Sunshine State, with Miami left-hander Caleb Smith in Tampa to face right-hander Charlie Morton, as well as a big slate of weekend miss matchups. And here with the lowdowns on the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. We have a doubleheader this weekend featuring American League Eastern Division rivals Boston and New York on Saturday in hitter-friendly Yankee Stadium. Neither Game 2 starter had been named as of this recording, and Chris Sale's Game 1 matchup rating of 189 makes us hesitant to overdo it with Yankee hitters, but load your lineups with as many Sox and Yanks as you can, no matter who's on the hill for Game 2. Two other teams' hitters should enjoy big weekends against teams whose starting pitchers have double-negative matchup ratings. The home-run-happy Minnesota Twins are at home in right-handed hitter-friendly target field against Kansas City starters with combined matchup ratings of minus 188. And the red-hot Washington Nationals are on the road in pitcher-friendly chase field where d starters have combined matchup ratings of minus 181. There are 16 starting pitchers with matchup ratings above 1, and 7 of them have matchup ratings above 2. Only one has a matchup rating above 3, and once again, it's one of the Houston Astros' now three aces. Garrett Cole was the guy last weekend, and this weekend, Justin Verlander tops them all with a matchup rating of 340. That'll make for a Sunday stroll in his home park against Seattle Mariners left-hander Tommy Malone in our marquee miss matchup. Malone has a matchup rating of minus 0.83, making a matchup rating differential of 4.23 in favor of Verlander. As if the Astros need additional advantages after acquiring Zach Greinke at the trade deadline. There are six honorable mention miss matchups with matchup rating differentials ranging from 3.90 to 2.60 in favor of Steven Strasburg, Walker Bueller, and Aaron Nola on Saturday, and Noah Syndergaard, Shane Bieber, and Patrick Corbin on Sunday. Our marquee matchup features the smallest matchup rating differential among matchups in which both pitchers have strong start matchup ratings. It's a Sunday Sunshine State showdown in St. Pete's pitcher-friendly Tropicana Field. 
35-year-old Rays right-hander Charlie Morton puts up his matchup rating of 261 against the cross-state rival Miami Marlins 27-year-old left-hander Caleb Smith, who has a matchup rating of 077. Miami has the worst record in the National League at 42 and 65, 23 games under 500, 21 games out of first place in the National League East, and 14 games out of the wild card hunt. Tampa has the fifth best record in the American League at 62 and 48, 14 games over 500, and a half game ahead of Oakland for the second AL wild card slot. The Fish are 10 games under 500 out of water on the road. The Rays are two games over 500 at home. Miami has a run differential of minus 100. Tampa Bay has a run differential of plus 85. In interleague games, Miami is 8 and 7 and Tampa is 9 and 4. Against teams under 500, the Rays are 17 games over 500, third best in the major leagues. Against teams over 500, the Marlins are 25 games under 500, 28th in Major League Baseball. Versus left-handers, Tampa Bay is 5 games over 500, 6th best in the majors. Versus right-handers, Miami is 20 games under 500, 26th in the majors. Give the Rays a great big edge. Caleb Smith's baseball reference war of 2.2 makes him the best pitcher on the Marlins. Charlie Morton's baseball reference war of 4.1 makes him the best player on the Rays. On the StatCast leaderboard for expected WOBA, among pitchers who faced at least 100 hitters this season, Smith's 291 ranks 34th among starters. Morton's 269 ranks 9th. Last week, BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickrand singled out Smith as one of the better young starting pitchers in the game, noting that Smith's good results have been backed by very good skills. Comparing his 16-game started sample in 2018 with his 17-game started sample in 2019, Caleb Smith's growth has been nothing short of spectacular. His whip has gone from 124 to 100, his expected ERA from 436 to 388, his control rate from 3.8 walks per nine to 2.9 walks per nine, his dominance rate from 10.2 strikeouts per nine to 11.0 strikeouts per nine, his command ratio from 2.6 strikeouts per walk to 3.8 strikeouts per walk, and his BPV from 87 to 126, ranking 30th among starters. Smith's 2018 PQS dominant to disaster ratio was 19% dominant to 24% disaster. In 2019, it's 35% dominant to 12% disaster. The young gun should hold his own Sunday. Charlie Morton has made 23 starts this season, and his career-best BPV of 147 ranks 15th among starting pitchers. His PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 52% dominant to 13% disaster. Last month, Nick Rand said Morton has become a firmly reliable SP2, posting fine results since July of 2018, backed by very good skills. Morton is in his 10th season with 15 or more games started, and he's posting career second-bests in expected ERA at 326 and control rate at 2.8 walks per nine, along with career bests in whip at 107, dominance rate at 10.9 strikeouts per nine, and command ratio at 3.8 strikeouts per walk. Charlie Morton should come out on top Sunday. To recap, get your Red Sox and Yankees hitters active for their Saturday doubleheader and fill as many slots as you can with Twins and Nats both Saturday and Sunday. On Saturday, take Steven Strasburg, Walker Bueller, and Aaron Nola. No need to avoid Caleb Smith on Sunday, but take advantage of even better starts from Charlie Morton, Justin Verlander, Noah Syndergaard, Shane Bieber, and Patrick Corbin. Go to the Teams tab at BaseballHQ.com and use our Pitcher Matchups tool to choose your pitchers every day and your hitters every week. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the anatomy of a Tout Wars deal. Earlier on the show, I talked with Howard Bender of SiriusXM about a trade we made in the Tout Wars American League. When I'm preparing to offer a trade, I do a lot of planning. Mostly this helps, but sometimes it backfires, and I'll talk more about that a little later. But I'd like to talk about the process, which I hope you find helpful as you prepare your own trade proposals. Now, some of this might seem redundant to you or obvious, and I apologize for that, but believe me when I say lots of owners leave out some of the steps they really should be taking. So, if we get to something you already know, or more importantly, that you already do, just think of it as a friendly reminder. Okay, Step one was to scout the projected standings for opportunities. Our league uses the OnRoto stat site, which has a tool that allows you to look at the projected standings using Baseball HQ's player projections. In the past, I used the HQ projections themselves in an Excel sheet to project my whole league. The point is that you have to figure out some idea where the league is going and not worry too much about where it is right now. So when I started thinking about finding a deal, I projected to be fourth overall in the race with 83 points. I was three and a half out of third and 12 out of the lead. I had 12 and 12 in the pitching decimals, so as good as it could get, thanks to Trevor Bauer and Jose Barrios and some good streamed contributions from Mike Fires, Mike Leak, and Daniel Norris to a lesser extent. I also had a pretty solid 12 points in stolen bases, thanks to Jonathan Villar, the otherwise disappointing but heating up Jose Ramirez, and my May free agent pickup Oscar Mercado. I jotted down the possibility of possibly dealing VR, which would also be an addition by subtraction that might help my on-base percentage where I was fourth but in a tight race. I also thought I might try to put VR on a team that could pass one of the top three in the category. I was in the lower third of wins and strikeouts, but there were some pretty big gaps under my clump of guys in both categories, somewhat protecting my downside. I also thought I might be able to deal two or three of my lesser starters for some help in the three categories where I had some potential to gain, RBIs and runs in particular, but also home runs. I also had a chance at three or four points in saves, but saves are hard to trade for. With all that out of the way, step two was to use the projections to identify a trade partner, specifically someone who would benefit from adding wins or strikeouts, and again, ideally, who could also pass my competition in the overall race in wins and strikeouts. The most important thing about formulating a trade offer is to be able to explain to your potential trading partner what is in it for him. You need to know what's in it for you too, of course, but nobody makes a deal with you because it's good for you. It's got to be good for them. Here's where things got a little innovative. In reviewing the projected standings, I noticed that Howard's projected strikeout total was really quite low, and I went to take a close look to see why. I gave his roster some close scrutiny, and it jumped out at me. The reason he had so few strikeouts was he only had 560 innings and only two active starters. On Roto doesn't project innings, so I did it manually using HQ projections, and Howard projected to be at least 100 innings light of our minimum innings requirement. Like a lot of leagues, Tout plays with a minimum innings requirement. In Tout, a team not getting 950 innings automatically gets a 1 in both ERA and WHIP. I've played in leagues where you get 0. 
So if Howard didn't add some innings, and pretty soon, he was going to lose 8 out of the 10 points he was projected to get in the pitching decimals. That loss would have ramification for next year's draft, because even though it's not a keeper league, in tout, owners lose 10 fab dollars in the next year's league for every point they are under 60. Now, Howard's going to be under 60, but losing 8 points in the decimals would mean surrendering another $80 of fab for 2020. I looked some more at the projections, and I realized that Howard was also pretty locked in home runs, RBI, and runs. He was on an island in each category with very little chance of gaining points and very little chance of losing points. And he was semi-locked in saves, not as tightly as in those batting stats. I thought I had the makings of an offer. Step three was writing up that offer, and this takes some thought. I had to figure out what I knew about Howard from talking to him, listening to him on Sirius XM Radio, watching him play in the league. He's made some trades already. The danger is in how detailed you want to make your explanation. Some guys don't like to be, and I'm quoting here, told how to run their teams. So a super detailed offer explaining all the nuances is not the way to go. They feel forced, they feel threatened, and they don't like it. You may like it, they don't like it, and it's them you got to be worried about. But I knew from my interactions with Howard that he was pretty businesslike, and that with a busy life going on, I suspected he didn't want to have a coy, I have an idea, Howard, email to start some kind of long email exchange with a bunch of offers and counteroffers. So I opted for a direct approach and explaining in detail what my idea was and how it would help him. Here's some of the text from the email. On the pitching side, you're almost sure to come up more than 100 innings short of the 950 inning minimum to get your 9 to 10 combined points in ERA and WHIP, leaving you instead with one point in each category. That's a 7 to 8 point loss, and it's going to cost you $10 per point. You need starters, probably three, and you need them pretty quickly. I would be willing to give you Mike Fires, Mike Leak, and Daniel Norris, whose combined innings would push you over the 950 innings you need. You'd get back your 7-8 to lost ratio points, plus a second wins point, and you have a puncher's chance at a third wins point as well. You'd also have about a 50-50 chance at gaining a strikeout point. I would get back Ian Kennedy, Ty Buttry, and Adam Simber. Kennedy could help me in saves if he keeps the job and isn't dealt somewhere. Remember, this was before the deadline. Because he could end up being a setup guy with no saves. Plus, it would get me back up to nine pitchers. I think I'm going to lose a wins point and a strikeouts point. Could lose two in either of them. On the hitting side, I would get Matt Olson and Aaron Judge from you, giving back Rowdy Tellez and Brian Goodwin. That's a corner infielder for a corner infielder, outfielder for outfielder, and the pitchers match, so the rosters balance. I can get two points each in RBI and runs, I think, and your chances of making or losing any points in homers, RBIs, or runs look pretty slim. I also would like $10 worth of fab so I can bid on some prospects. To sum up, I would gain two each in RBIs and runs, and I would get maybe three or four in saves if Kennedy holds on, making eight in total, but I'm going to lose one or two each in strikeouts and wins, so my net is four to six. You're going to gain those seven to eight points in the unforfeited ERA and whip, plus two or three more in strikeouts and wins, so you're going to net nine to 11. A while later, I heard back from Howard saying, I'm totally game. Just send it through the site and I will happily accept. I did that and the deal was quickly consummated. The morals of this story, first, prepare carefully by looking ahead as best you can. A corollary is when you receive an offer, don't let your partner use the current standings to explain your future gains.
Second, understand or make your best guess as to how to start the process. Remember, some guys like the whole thing laid out and explained in detail. I'm an explanation-oriented guy, so you might gain some points in home run. Just irks me when I receive an offer, especially if the ask is for a pitcher who will cost me twice as many points in pitching categories. Other owners, however, prefer a more ambiguous opener, like, I have an idea about a trade, maybe speed for saves, with the details to be hashed out in a back and forth of offers and counteroffers and usually some arguments. Third, always present the offer in terms of what's in it for the other guy. Points to be gained, standings places to be gained. I believe it can help to also explain where your points are going to come from in the trade to make the guy feel like he's not being hoodwinked. And finally, Don't create issues that will have to be subsequently managed, especially roster imbalances or not clicking the right site buttons to execute the deal. Make it easy for the other person to accept, and he'll likely accept. Now, as a result of this deal, I have improved my projected points total enough to get up into the overall race, which is about all I could have hoped for. Of course, projections vary, performance varies, guys can get hurt. This is not locked in, but I've put myself in a position to succeed and I can't ask for any more than that. If you have any trade ideas or stories, please put them in the HQ forums thread, put them in the comments underneath this story on BaseballHQ.com, or email them to my BaseballHQRadio at gmail.com address, BHQRadio at gmail.com. Good luck with your trading. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Howard is a real personality. He's loads of fun to talk with on the show and in person, and I find him to be a great guest on the show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well, of course, to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Ariel Cohen of Fangraphs and Rotographs. That's Ariel Cohen on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.